desert and the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be in the world's time zones, because we cover all of them. This strange, unusual program, this eclectic adventure in the night called Coast to Coast AM. It's uh, an honor to be here. It's an honor to certainly be interviewing the man I'm about to interview, Amarillo Slim. You may not have known that he was on the way tonight, but... Indeed, he is. I'll tell you all about him in a moment. And then in the second hour, of course, Bob Lazar. And so this should be quite a night, all in all, folks. I want to note for you very quickly, I've had about 10,000 emails. Richard C. Hoagland's website is just temporarily down, as is he with the flu. Richard C. Hoagland has the flu. Look out, out there. I'm hearing stories that this year's shot may not do the job and... I don't know. Being in isolation may be a good thing. Anyway, his website will be up shortly. Understand we may take a moonshot with a shuttle. That's something we'll talk with Richard about. I spoke with him a couple of hours ago. Coming up in a moment. <laughs> oh, what an honor. Uh, the book is Amarillo Slim in a World Full of Fat People. <laughs> the memoirs of the greatest gambler who ever Live. That's who you're about to hear from. Uh, Thomas Austin Amarillo Slim Preston, 74 years of age, is a fast-talking, colorful Texas gambler and poker ambassador who won the World Series of Poker in 1972, never without his snakeskin rap Stetson and custom-designed cowboy boots. He lives in Amarillo, Texas, is 6'4 and weighs 170. He is skinny. He's so skinny. He looks like an advanced man for a famine. Despite his string bean build... Amarillo Slim is larger than life and considered around the world to be the greatest gambler of all time. The greatest gambler of all time. What, is he, what kind of things has he done to give you a little taste? He played Minnesota Fats in one pocket uh, with, with a broom. In one pocket. Playing one pocket with a broom. He took. 21 and a half points on the Jets and uh, won a six-figure bet on Broadway Joe and Super Bowl. That, that couldn't be three. Oh, maybe it was. Um, he, um, he, he made a cat pick up a Coke bottle. This is one I got to hear about. Made a cat pick up a Coke bottle. He bet on which sugar cube a fly might land on in an Arkansas jail. Whatever he was there for. He won the World Series of Poker. No small matter at Binion's Horseshoe in 72. He beat Evil Knievel in golf with a carpenter's hammer, betting two out of 30 cab drivers in Dallas would have the same birthday. <laughs> he beat Bobby Riggs playing ping pong with a skillet. Beat Willie Nelson out of $300,000 playing dominoes in Vegas. Played Bob Stupak, my neighbor over the hill there, pitching coins for $65,000 at the Rio in Las Vegas. Played Larry Flint, heads up poker, at the Phipps Club in Los Angeles. <laughs> Betting a prominent politician. Betting a prominent politician? Yeah, that George W. Bush would win the 2000 presidential election and a whole lot more. In fact, they've got 21 listed here. The crazy bets and crazy things the man you're about to hear from has done. In a moment, Amarillo Slim.
now to where else? Amarillo, Texas, and here's Amarillo Slim. Amarillo, welcome to the program. Good to be here, bud. What's going on? <laughs> you at the moment, my friend. Um, I spent 18 months in your fair city back in the days when you used to have an Air Force base there, Amarillo Air Force Base. Well, yeah, but when Lyndon Johnson failed to kill Potter County, our Air Force Base got phased out. I recall. I think uh, last time I was there, only thing left were a few red and white towers out there where the Air Force Base used to be. That's about it. That's about it. But Amarillo is a good town. Hell, I, I've lived here nearly all well all my life. I I met a pair of really good-looking twins in Amarillo, so I I remember that place for a long time. Why well, you, you should? Because our population's been the same the last thirty years, never varies. <laughs> Every time some woman gets pregnant, some man leaves town. <laughs> so Amarillo just been the same forever. Why Why are you a gambler? Well, I don't know. I uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> why? I mean, it just seemed like it'd come pretty easy for me, and. Uh, well, that's soft as butter for me. I enjoy it. Uh, yeah, but I mean, there must be something in your psychological makeup. You must thought about it from time to time. Why do I do this? Why am I a gambler? Uh, sometimes it's uh, it's a good thing. Sometimes, and today it's a bad thing. My gosh, look what Southern Cal did. That last field goal, you'd like to go spend what it cost me. I had taken 22 points on that game. So uh, you haven't let up at all, have you? No, uh, that's for women and children. Nobody gives up. <laughs> I would love to hear. Your your book is out. How is your book being greeted? By the way, folks, uh, if you go to my website uh, and just click on Art's webcam, I'm holding a copy of Amarillo Sum's book, picture of him right on the front. And um, so there's a lot of really cool stories in this book. Uh, let's talk about a few of them. I mean, you, you, you played Minnesota Fats in one pocket with a broom? Well, yeah, when uh, in in my youth, I uh, I was a professional billiard player. Uncle Sam sent me all over the world giving uh, pocket billiard exhibitions when I was only 17. And when I came back from Europe, I ran into Fats at Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and uh, and we played. And he beat me out of well, he beat me out of a good sized figure. But a little later on, he found out he should have won about five times that. So. That's got him a couple of sponsors together, and they come down the road to play me some. And uh, I uh, matched a proposition game with him, a game that I had practiced for a long, long time. And uh, there was a handicap involved, but uh, Bass was a good player. But what he smelled cooking wasn't on the fire. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, he, I do. Uh, he, uh, uh, a broom. Well, yeah, just like you sweep the floor with. And, uh, and bless his heart, he... Uh, he left here scratching a broke tail, and uh, I felt it was good for him. I liked Fats. I was one of the few people that liked Fats, but we knew him as New York Fats. He only became Minnesota Fats after the movie came out. Oh, oh, the movie did that to him? Yeah. Yeah, we knew Fats. I'd played Fats in uh, in New York, and I'd played him in Atlanta. I'd played him in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We'd played several times. You right. say you were one of the only people who liked him, huh? Well, yeah, because he was a... Man, he was stronger than Nelly's breath. That that son of a gun was a... Uh, well, I liked Fats Hill. He was okay with me. Uh-huh. Very few people knew his name. His name was Rudolph Walderon, and uh, he was a showman and a good one. In fact, he told me one time I played him an exhibition in Reno and sculled out on him. I couldn't beat him at that time. Huh. And he says to me, Say, you skinny cowboy, if you want some notoriety, go set yourself on fire. 
Uh, he was as good as his reputation says. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you, I, I'm a cat person. I own four cats, and so when I saw that, I mean, you 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 made a, a cat. You you bet somebody that a cat could pick up a Coke bottle. Now cats can't pick up Coke bottles. Oh yeah, I've done it several times in my life. I make the cat pick up the Coke bottle, made it take you up the elevator. And to a parking lot and put the bottle on top of his car. What? I made the cat... How, yeah, I heard you. I just said, uh, I'm saying, like, how could you do that? Well, all trappers don't wear fur caps. <laughs> and early, that me and this man had been playing some high goth. And uh, one evening, uh, we always went to the office bar that way uh, in a lounge there in New York. And when we, when we did that, well, if anyone had a phone call, they'd say, where are you? Well, we was always at the office. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. So now I had given a newspaper kid a $50 bill that morning and told him to catch me a cat. He said, what kind? I said, just a grown cat. I don't care if it's a, I don't care if what it is. If it's just a grown cat, not a baby kitten. So he caught me a cat, and I had stationed this gentleman on the outside of the booth where he'd be sure and see him. Had he been unable to see him, I would have pointed him out to him, but... He saw the, this kid threw this cat in the uh, lounge where we were. It was the office. And uh, he said, my God, what's a her cat like that doing in a nice place like this? So I leaned completely over him and saw the cat, and I said, well, that's a real smart cat, and just sat back down. And he grabbed me with the shoulder, and he said, what do you mean a smart cat? I said, you can tell by the width of the distance between his ears that he's real intelligent. Well, I'm a non-drinking stiff, so I was drinking a Coca-Cola, which wasn't out of line. And uh, I said, well, like, I bet I can make that cat pick up this Coke bottle and take it up there on that parking lot and put it on top of your car. Uh-huh. Well, man, you could hear a mouse wet on cotton. It got just as quiet in that building. So naturally, they, they sent and got a yellow legal pad, and they wrote out, Stipulation as to what you could and couldn't do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the the uh, uh, the way the bet would come down, sir. The, I, I'm taking it. You mean the outline of the the bet exactly how it would well, come yeah, down? Yeah, because uh, I couldn't, uh, you know, I couldn't tie it to him or something. So none of them covered what I did, and so I uh, I was real sure that the cat would. How much money was on the table over this? Oh man, it, we we bet enough hundred dollar bills to burn up thirty wet mules. This everybody in the joint bet me. But see, you take an empty Coca-Cola bottle and snap the cap back on it, and just hit it with your hand. There's a very very slight minute indentation where you open it. It raises the edge on that cap. Yeah. You grab a cap by its tail. Now, I had some welders glove, but stashed in that place. And you grab him by one hand by the tail, and he'll turn over and scratch you. You put both of your hands on his tail, right at the face of his tail, yeah. and keep him off of it. Well, at every entry to any restaurant or lounge or bar or business or anything, there's generally a tile surface, especially right in the front of the uh, cash register. Yeah. So I lay this Coke bottle down, and I drag this cat. When you drag him, he grasps at everything. He just... He lets his claws out, and he's trying to get hold of anything. That's right. They'll grab on anything. That's right. So I drag him over the bottle. <sighs> it doesn't take long, and his, his claws will catch on that indentation. Now, you knew you knew this because you'd done this a whole bunch of times. Obviously, you weren't just 
Oh, I wasn't flying by the seat of my britches. I knew that cat was going to pick up that bottle. So when I pick him up by his tail, as long as I hold on to his tail, he'll hold on to that bottle. And we went out and we opened the elevator and everybody got in that could and the rest of them climbed the stairs. Took it to the top of the, of the parking lot up there and when I turned loose of the Coke bottle, he turned loose of the, I mean, when I turned loose of his tail, he turned loose of the Coke. He turned loose of the bottle and there it was. So, uh, I, I felt it was good for him because they uh, they should have known he was a smart cat, but they looked at the width between his eyes. Well, they should have been looking at your eyes, probably. Well, that doesn't do them any good because uh, I, I, I'd, I'd only let them see what I wanted them to see. Uh -huh. So there's a lot more than uh, Tibetan and gambling, especially this kind of gambling, than than just betting. I mean, there's really, there's one element of showmanship, there's one element of, well... Oh, there's a little bit of deceit, a little bit of, of uh... I was going to say grifting. Well, yeah, because, see, some <laughs> of the things, the only one I ever did that was just uh, an out-and-out, -out, uh, I'd call damn near a swindle, was about that eating a, a quail a day for 30 days. Yeah, what was that all about? Well... <clears throat> All my life, I've heard that you couldn't eat a, uh, no one could eat a quail a day for 30 days. Why not? Well, that meat's too strong. You get to where you can't even walk in the room where it's being prepared. A quail a day, 30 yeah. days, yeah. I know an attorney in Austin that bet a big figure that he could and he didn't do it. I know about 20 people that tried it and no one ever did. And couldn't do it. So a friend of ours bought the, uh, Holiday Inn Casino in Reno and a bunch of the bosses and then some of us peons, too. We went to Reno to welcome him to Nevada. And he said, Slim, get us something unusual for dinner. So I sent to back home and got some turkey fries. None of these guys are there eating turkey fries. So one night then I got uh, some calf fries. And I sent to Louisiana and got some frog legs. You know, a bunch of old spoiled millionaires sitting around there. And, <laughs> and uh, finally I, he said, don't you have some quail? And I said, yeah. So I... I got us a mess of quail. So he volunteered it. It all come up on the natural. And when it comes up natural, it's always a certainty to become a reality. You know what I'm saying? I, well, I think so, I do. Yeah. So Tom said, uh, oh, these are real people I'm talking about. He said, uh, Lem, do you think you could eat a quail a day for 30 days? I said, hell, I know I can't because I, you know, I knew about it. He said, well, you, you only win a couple hundred thousand, I bet you can't eat a quail a day. A couple hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand dollars on that. Well, yeah, see, those kind of people aren't on any budget. Uh, well. So that would, that'd be, that's not an out-of-line wager. No, I, I, I know it isn't. I, I, I know. I've been watching some of these World Series of Poker tournaments, and uh, I want to talk to you about that. It's insane. Well, we get a stack of $100 bills out there the show dog couldn't jump over. <laughs> you know, when I left the World Series last year and went to the host opening of a new casino in Colorado, I put $8,320,000 in $100 bills on the end of that poker table. Oh, my God. We had 832 players post 10000 apiece to play in the tournament. That's eight million three hundred and twenty thousand. Man, that's got some whiskers on it. Oh yeah, it sure does. You know, my but anyway. Let me, let me, let me finish. Go ahead and finish up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that night uh, we went up. We had adjoining suites, and about two o'clock in the morning, Benny come in. He said, "Slim, you awake?" I said, "The hell no. Go on back and go to bed. Let's get some sleep." He says, "I got a chore for you." 
That's what said. He said, you got to find a way where a man can eat a quail a day for 30 days. <laughs> I said, well, Benny, you can't do it. I said, I know a lot of people have tried. He said, I've heard that all my life. But he said, now, you will find some way for a man to eat a quail a day. I said, I don't know. He said, well, I'm designating you a job to to find a way to do it. Right. So about four or five months later, by sheer accident, I was in Roswell, New Mexico, trying out a new cutting horse. I had him in a round pen there, and I told the, the cowboys brought the horse over there. I said, uh, open that gate there for me and let me show him a little bit of country. He said, well, Flem, just go down. When you get out the gate, turn it right there in that pasture and said, you, you're going into about a three-section pasture. I said, I'll see you later. So I loped down to the end of that lane and started to step off of the horse to get open the gate. And this guy said, oh, Mr. Flem, let me get that gate for you. So this guy opens the gate where I can go out in that big pasture, and I said, how in the hell did you beat me down here? Uh-huh. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you just let me out of that round pen down there about a quarter of a mile. Or he says, that's my twin brother, identical twin. I said, Lordy, 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 look here. <laughs> now <laughs> the, light, <laughs> the light really come on. So boy, apparently it, you can eat a quail every other day. Oh, no, I'd let one of them eat it for about three days and then go to a dark movie or something. And the other one come out and he'd eat them for three or four days. And then now, see, go. that's pretty close to a swindle. What did I just tell you? I, <laughs> you I did. I told you, but see... That's a case of using your head instead of your rear end anyway. Oh, well, that's true. I, uh, <laughs> I thought it was, it was so much fun. Because when this guy, after about the 12th day, and this guy looks like he's doing all right with it, but these these folks that wagered, they couldn't swallow boiled okra. It looked, it looked like the, the wheel had already run off. And uh, I had I enjoyed that one because it was a little... Uh, well, I guess you could say it's unethical. I don't know. I just uh... will you gamble? Uh, I mean, you gambled on a fly landing, right? While you were in jail or something. Beat, uh, well, uh, I wasn't in jail. I've never been incarcerated. Oh, never. No. Well, now no. see that, that that right there is something interesting. You've never officially been in jail. That's right. I, I, I've got a call oh, from a little old town over in Arkansas from the sheriff, and he said he had a well, he's a big drug lord. In his jail, and he had an awful lot of money on deposit, and he wanted me to come over there and see if I couldn't find some way to beat him. <laughs> so we agreed to cut it like a watermelon. You know how you cut a watermelon, don't you? I do, right down the middle. Yeah. So I went over there, and they determined that if I smoked in the hall there at the courthouse and couldn't pay my fine, that they put you in jail for a couple of hours. Uh-huh. So I lit me a cigarette, and... I was unable to pay my fine, so it looked like it was on the square. And they put me in there with this fellow, and uh, we were sitting on the edge of a little old, I guess you'd call it a bunk, because there was one below and one above. There was a little bench in the front of us, and this guy knew who I was, or he heard some stories about me, and he said, my God, I bet you could get us some coffee. I said, well, probably, what do you want? He said, Man, I'm a coffee hound. I know you are. Let's have some coffee. I said, okay. We hollered for what they call the jailer. That's the guy with the keys, I guess. Mm-hmm. He come back there, and I told him we wanted some coffee. And this guy said, Slim, I use cream and sugar both. So uh, I said, well, can you get us some cream and sugar? And the guy said, yeah. So he brought us some, but the sugar he brought us was uh, lump sugar, cubes. Yeah, well, you've cubes, probably sure. seen them. Man. Yeah, of course. 
they look just like a paradise. They're just a little, well, that's what they look like. Paradise, paradise. yeah, they do. So uh, it wasn't real sanitary in there anyway, and uh, and there was uh, some flies buzzing around. So I thought, well, looky here, I've already got me a way to break this gap. So I put five of these sugar cubes on this little bench right in the front of us, about, you know, two foot in the front of us. Hold that story right there, Amarillo. We're uh, here at the bottom of the hour. Uh, he was going to bet the guy that he could cause a fly to land on a particular sugar cube. This is a man who will bet on anything, obviously, and pretty much has. From the high desert, in the middle of the night, doing what you never expect, always the surprise. This is Coast to Coast AM. Don't touch that dial. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from East of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From West of the Rockies, call Art at 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art Bell by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5, and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. You're listening to one of the greatest gamblers, if not the greatest gambler in the world. His name is Amarillo Slim, and he'll be right back. Back to Amarillo Slim. If I got this right, there's a guy in a jail, right? A whole bunch of money, and they're going to split that watermelon right down the middle, and so he gets himself tossed in jail on some smoky infraction, and gets uh, in the jail. He's betting with this guy, and he says up a bet, something about sugar cubes. So he had sugar cubes there, right? That's right. And so what how, What was the bet? Uh, what he had on deposit. But after it got told a lot of times, well, a lot of people thought he had more on the positive than he did. He had thirty-seven thousand. Thirty-seven thousand right, dollars. But, but actually, what was the bet? Thirty-seven thousand and whatever odd change he had. No, that's the money. I meant, what were you betting on? Well, I put five of those sugar cubes out there on this bench. Five. And he said, uh, "What? What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, I'll, I'll, you see those flies?" I said, "I bet I can tell you which one." That those sugar cubes, the fly lands on. Yeah. He said, well, you've got it. I said, well, not even money. There's five of them. And even money would be four to one, but I'll take uh, seven to two. I knew he'd fudge. You know, he wanted the best of it, <laughs> which is three and a half to one. So he didn't disappoint me. He said, no, 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 I'm not going to lay 
friend has one lady three to one. I said, well, have you got anything? Of course, I already knew he had. So he said, yeah, I'll let for what I've got on deposit. I said, well, you haven't got glass pockets. Let me see a receipt where I can tell what you got on deposit. Of course, I already knew. So I designated the cube it would land on, and we wagered. Yeah. But you see, sugar, just in its normal form, uh, one of those sugar cubes is just like a, a teddy bear. I'm looking at one on the TV or a, a picture or something. It's nothing. But to apply it. But if you'll moisten your finger and wet that sugar cube, it'll dissolve a little bit of it. It gives off an aroma. Now, when it gives off an aroma, Mr. Fly, he doesn't even see those other four. They're just like that bench. He just five bombs that cube. <laughs> My God. You can play gin rummy on this man's shirt tail. It'll stick in my finger out when you do that thing that seat. But, uh, I knew which one that fly was going to land on. And it did. Well, it always will. <laughs> That's something to remember. So you just get a little, you just have to put a little water there on there, a little, little bit of spit on the end of that thing. and That's exactly. Well, you know it dissolves it. Oh, my. Well, when it evaporates, well, naturally it gives off a, a sweet aroma. Amarillo, what's your wife's opinion on, the, on your lifestyle, the way you live? Well, I guess she thinks I'm a pretty clever little fella because... In my youth, I used to make some trips, and they weren't all positive. But it was very seldom ever asking if it was, how did you do? I'd, even if I had a bad trip, I'd say, oh, I beat these folks. So there wasn't any need to be being a burden or a hardship on my family over my gaming. Listen, I, I've been watching these uh, poker tournaments, and... Yeah. Man, Amarillo, uh, to play... I understand these are good poker players, but my God... People land down sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars on you know like no hand. I, it's just I, it you, you would have to have I don't know great big giant brass ones to play in a tournament yeah. like that. I, those people yeah. are crazy. Well, let me tell you. Uh, years ago, they uh, I was a guinea pig for a thing that they they wanted to do, and originally I turned it down. And then a friend of mine got me to go ahead and do it. They put some monitors on me, like they strapped on uh, those astronauts. Yeah. And they wanted to show why, under duress, I didn't show any emotion. Right. Is the way it was kind of worded to me. And, uh, hell, I could look you right in the eye, and, you know, it's just like that guy that stands there and he swears to you it's raining outside, but all the time he's wetting on your leg. <laughs> so, uh,. I I don't know, but it takes a different breed of cat. See, everybody can move their chips up and down. You watch these tournament games, which you're doing, and so is everybody else in the country. All these guys shuffle their chips straight up and down. Well, everybody can do that, but it takes a different breed of cat that can move them chips out there in the center without a hand. Now, anyone can if they've got the nuts or a cinch hand or a good hand, but... uh, I uh, I respect a guy that can can bet all of that without without having a thing. I know. It uh, well, I tell you, it's uh, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty tough go. Uh, everybody asked me about they wanted to become a professional poker player or something, and my suggestion has always been they get them a driver's license and go to driving a dump truck. What the hell? <laughs> They have a guaranteed income, and it might be easier because this is no life for uh, for the weak at heart, you know. I guess not. 
listen, my wife is uh, she was uh, she she dealt uh, in Las Vegas, and she's got a question for you. She wants to know why a woman has never won the World Series of Poker. Well, and I don't you... know what this is leading up to. Well, and, well no, you don't, because uh, even, I, even I don't. Uh, why oh. hasn't a woman ever won, and, and will, do you think one ever will? What, but no, why? and see, y'all are going back when, several years ago when that lady got hold of about, oh, she got hold of seven or 800,000, about 800,000 in less than two hours in one of our big tournaments. So I was doing an interview with UPI in there in the sombrero room during a break, and naturally she stuck her goat-smelling fanny right in the middle of it and said, well, looks like Slim, I'm going to find to be the first woman that wins the World Series of Poker. Now, I did not say if a woman wins it. I said, Vera, well, I said, Miss, if you win it, you can take a dull knife and cut my throat. Well, by the time guys like you got hold of it, I, I was quoted as saying, if a woman ever won it, they'd cut my throat. Uh-huh. So every year during the World Series of Poker, some some lady will get hold of a few hundred thousand or else. No, Amaral, I'm not listening to me now. I wasn't going down that trail. I oh, really, I wanted to know, I mean, why hasn't a woman won? I mean, just the plain odds. It's got to be something well, different. I I just don't think a woman... I hear her say I'm going to catch hell from them again. Yeah. I just, I've got, I've kind of got an agreement with the ladies. If they won't do any gambling, I won't have any babies. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll stick to my part of the deal. But I do say this, that's the only place in the world I can beat a woman and not get thrown in jail. So I welcome all the ladies to play. Yeah, but you still haven't answered the question. Why do you think one hasn't won? What is it about a woman playing poker that's different? I just don't think they've got a heart as big as a pea. And under duress, I think they'll give it up. I, I, maybe they won't. Now, wait a minute. I know a lot of good lady poker players. Uh-huh. I know a lot of good would-be lady poker players. In fact, uh, uh, the best lady poker player that ever lived is a girl named Betty Carey. She hadn't been around the last few years. She, she went to Alaska and played, and she's got herself completely rich now. I think she's living in Montana. But uh, she uh, she played about ten different guys in Vegas head up poker and beat every one of them. And I'm talking about top water players. I'm not talking about uh, somebody that's running around looking for a hundred thousand to get in a game with. I'm talking about successful players. So she called me and said, "I'm ready to graduate." And I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "You're next." So I didn't disappoint her a damn bit. I went out there. In fact, she and I played right after my first tournament at the Hilton. And uh, I treated her like a stepchild, <laughs> but uh, on your hand. And uh, that's the psychology in poker. So somebody told her that on your hand. I mean, not by deceit or deception. I had she had a tell on her, and uh, ah. I call. That's why I say there's a lot of psychology to poker. Yeah. Now a tell is something uh, that somebody does. It's a giveaway, right? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what it is now that everybody knows about it now. Okay. Uh, when we sat down to play, she played me a $100,000 freeze out. We, uh, you had to play with somebody who won or lost it. In other words, you couldn't get winner and go to dinner. You had to stay and play. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So prior to playing, they're going after the chips. Well, it takes them a little while to get a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of chips and get a couple of decks and a dealer and everything. So as I said, I'm a coffee hound anyway. I said, Betty, I'm going to have a cup of coffee. Would you like something to drink? She said, well, thank you, Slim. I said, I would. I'd like some hot tea. 
So they brought her some hot tea. While they're getting all this ready and I'd finished my coffee, I look at her and I said, Betty, how was your tea? Ooh, the tea was very nice, Slim. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Well, in about 40 minutes after that, well, a pot come up that the show dog couldn't jump over. I mean, it's really in technicolor. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So I say to her, Betty, how do you like your hand? She said, oh, Slim, this is a real good hand. Well, I know that little girl lied. You understand? <laughs> That's not what she said about that tea. And that was on the square. You know she didn't know that was a trick for her. Oh, that's a tell. Well, uh, so I called her. Yeah. And I called her with the weakest tell. I called her with two fives. Now, I'm talking about something that uh, a couple of years good salary, you know. And uh, it, it got... Uh, it got awful quiet in that room, but I knew her hand, so word got out. Some stupid in her tattletale went and told her what had happened to her. So the next time she played me, she played me again. Next time she played me, she played me down at the Golden Nugget. Yeah, I know it was. And uh, they had told her that she couldn't talk to me, so she showed up with one of them little old discs that uh, plays music and headphones over both ears. <laughs> and uh, I was at a disadvantage because I, I tried to get her to talk to me, and she she was told if she talked to me, she couldn't play anymore. Wow! But, but I, I liked Betty. Betty was Betty was a good player, but the best woman player I've ever seen. When you uh, win a bet, uh, is it most times intuition, skill, or luck? Well, I don't believe in luck. I, I think you make your own luck. In make life. your own luck, yeah. No matter whatever your endeavor is. Uh, if you're a farmer, you'll be a lot luckier if you'll spend more time on that tractor than you do down at the golf course. I, I've got a question, and maybe you can answer this. No one has ever been able to for me. You know what card counter is, of course, right? Yes, sir. Well, okay. Card counters are banned, I understand, from Las Vegas casinos on a regular basis. They just don't let them in. And I, I have always wondered, Amarillo, what's wrong with card counting? Is something you're doing totally in your head, right? Well, let me tell you, I was a... a I was a guinea pig for a program called 60 Minutes. You may not be familiar with it. It comes on oh, I know the Sunday night. I know and, it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I was supposed to have not been able to play. And the uh, Nevada Gaming Commission made a ruling that I could play. And I played at the only place in the world where I could have bet what I did. And uh, they filmed me playing 21 for a lady. Now, this lady was square as an apple box. She didn't know. She thought the king was the ruler of a foreign country and the queen was his bedmate. She didn't, she didn't know a thing in the world about cards. Yeah. And I, I and that tight ass producer gave her two hundred dollars. Well, I'm supposed to take this two hundred dollars and make this lady win some money. And I put it on twenty nine thousand eight hundred for her in about three hours. And she showed no excitement, no elation whatsoever until we got ready to go to the cage and cash it in. <laughs> and she is shaking like a leaf. So I know uh, there's 16 people in the world that's barred all over the world. 16 people, huh? 21. Yeah. They're in the Griffin book. And uh, people can win. Uh, I understand that. I just don't I understand. I don't think they should be barred. On what basis they're barred. I just never have been able to figure that out. I mean, this is a talent. They're just doing something, the math in their head. It, oh, well, anyway, I'll never well, get that. Listen, what do you think of, um, it, 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 there's a new gambling world here. I mean, there's online gambling. There's casino resorts. We've got Indian reservations now. Uh, is Las Vegas and I guess Atlantic City going to get hurt by all this? No, it just creates more players. 
Yeah. See, uh, uh, I'm fairly close to that gaming industry out there in Nevada. And I, I remember when uh, Atlantic City first opened, uh, everybody thought that it'd take off maybe 20, as much as 22 or 35 percent. Didn't happen. Of Nevada's business. All it did was increase it. Yep. Because it creates new players. And now those blanket-ass Indians have opened up a casino. Everybody that's got a Ubangum tribe has got a gambling license, and I don't think the poor old Indians are winding up with them, but there must be. I hosted opening of 14 different Indian casinos the last two years, hmm. so they're everywhere. And I think, I really and truly think they'll break the whole world. Mm. Uh do you think Las Vegas, of course, you know Las Vegas used to be an adult playground. Now it's like Disney Vegas. I mean, it's changed. I mean, they they used to throw around the drinks and the cigarettes, and uh, it was just a different kind of place. And now It was it, a better place then, though. You think so? Yeah, when the mob run everything back there, well, you were safe walking down the street, and you wasn't going to get hijacked in your room, and, and just ordinary folks that had maybe... Maybe twenty or thirty thousand. They got their room comped and food and beverage and everything. And now, everybody's uh, there's no there's no camaraderie. You're not an individual. You're a dollar mark walking around. Yeah. Well, I'm involved in I know some places out there where with a hundred thousand dollar card you can't even get a room during Chinese New Year or the Super Bowl or New Year. No, that's true. No, it's so, still successful. I mean, Las Vegas is. <laughs> Growing like crazy. Successful? Why, my God! They, I, I think they're gonna. I still think they'll break the whole, the whole world. <laughs> you know, eventually, either them, uh, either Vegas or lawyers. You know. Well, yeah. Now I'm, I'm sick of the lawyers. They, they milk me like a Rocky Mountain goat. My titties get so sore, I can't button my shirt. So I know about the lawyers. <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. They take a third of everything, and my theory is eventually. You're cutting out just a little. Well, I said they take a third of everything, so my theory is eventually they'll have everything. Well, yeah, I guess the only lawyer I've got out. No, no, I was friends with a lot of them. Your mayor and I are pretty close. Uh, I know he come out to the Jim Miller show and introduced me and told a bunch of lies. What a good son of a gun I was, this, that, and the other. But, but uh, what do you what do you think is the the hardest bet you've ever won? Oh, the only one I, the only time I ever risked anything other than money was when I bet all that money I could go down the river of no return. What the hell? I didn't know you couldn't do it till after I'd already bet. <laughs> then I went and had Jacques Cousteau make me a wetsuit that would keep me alive in that water for up to 15 minutes. By then, I'd already chartered a couple of helicopters to hover on uh, the serious part of that river. You're a cross between a gambler and evil Knievel. Say, I like that boy, too. I've, I've done some awful dirty things to the little feller. Yeah, you want some... <laughs> you, you beat him out of something, didn't you? <laughs> oh, I, man, I have really been a hardship on him. But it was good for him. It kind of builds character, and uh, and uh, he is a character anyway. I'll I, I tell you what I did. One day I beat him down in Dallas playing golf with a bow and arrow. I'd already beat him playing with a hammer, so I played him some with a bow and arrow. Bow and arrow. So now I thrashed his little panty. So I was the guest speaker at the Pole Bowl banquet that night. And after we got through yakking up there and everything, why, he would come around. He said, gee whiz, Slim, is there anything we can do? I said, well, I don't know. I said, there's a map of the United States and a telephone. Call somebody. I play nearly everything there is. He said, well, I hate to leave here. So now I remembered some things I had done before. And I said, how many people's in here? And he looked around and he said, 
with the Anatole in one little big banquet room. He said, probably 150, why? I said, you poll them, not me. And I'll bet out of the first 30 people you go to, two of them's got the same birthday. Now, brother, the wheel run off. Everybody in that building except two people. One was a, well, he was a big shot official with the NFL. The other one was an NFL owner. Bet me something. They might have just bet 600 or a few hundred or a few thousand, but everybody bet. Well, sure enough, the 18th person that they went to had the same birthday the as same the second birthday. one. Did you know that beforehand? Oh, I knew it at work. I didn't know. I didn't put anyone in there. <laughs> but one of the guys sold my money in the floor. So I know he's dissatisfied. You understand? Yeah, yeah. So he's insinuating there's something wrong with it. Yeah. So I scolded him and had him pick my stuff up and hand it to me. And I said, well, it's obvious you think there was something wrong with it. So let me tell you what to do. You think of some place we can go. I said, we'll go to a theater, a bowling alley, the police station, anywhere there's 30 people, we'll bet again. Now, one of the wise guys that was down there says, hell, why don't we call 30 taxi cabs? <laughs> I said, y'all call them, and we won't ask them nothing. In Texas, they've got a little identity badge that hangs over that visor. We're almost out of time here, y'all. All right, let me tell you. So anyway, we call 30 cabs. And I paid off. I paid off the last seventeen drivers because the thirteenth driver had the same birthday as the number nine. In your gambling life, Amarillo, how uh, much money? Uh, just guessing. How much money do you think you bet one way or the other, winning, losing altogether? How much money passed through your hands in bets? Oh, you couldn't. You, uh, it's not all win. See, it's uh, there's you have some sizable losses too. Oh, I know. That's what I'm saying. Winning, losing. How much money back and forth? You figure you've dealt with. Well, you couldn't you couldn't put it in a train. <laughs> you couldn't put it in a train. All right, listen, buddy, uh, we got to take off. We're out of time, but it was sure a pleasure. Thanks a million. Talk to you later. All right, take care. Amarillo Slim. <laughs> in a world of fat people. All right, we're going to uh, take a break here at the top of the hour, and then along comes Bob Lazar from the High Desert. I'm Art Bell. up through tarmac to the sun again, or to fly to the sun without burning a wing, to lie in a meadow and hear the grass sing, to have all these things in our memories hold, and they use them to help us to Take a ride. 
To talk with Art Bell, call the wildcard line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5, and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. It absolutely is. It's the weekend, everybody, and you're off, and boy, do I have a guest for you, Bob Lazar. He is a man who is probably one of the more controversial uh, people in the entire field of ufology. I mean, really controversial. Bob Lazar is president of United Nuclear. They specialize in research and development of uh, cutting-edge technologies, design and manufacture of radiation detection equipment for the nuclear weapons industry and the retail uh, of scientific equipment and supplies. He was formerly senior staff physicist for the U.S. Department of Naval Intelligence at the Nevada Test Site, you know that area near me, and the nuclear physicist at Los Alamos National Labs, where he was involved in advanced nuclear weapon design and development. And in the middle of all that, he's seen things that very few living Americans have ever seen. He's actually seen the ships. He's actually seen the saucers. In a moment, Bob Lazar. Some of you I know um, probably didn't hear the first program uh, or the last program, I guess I had to say, I did with uh, Bob Lazar. He is a fascinating guy who got to see the real McCoy at Area S4 near or seeing from this area 51. I uh, just, I guess it was uh, last uh, book, a few weeks ago now. I interviewed our mutual friend John Lear. Oh, what an interview that was, uh, Bob. It was really something. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks, Art. Um, gee, Bob, uh, I, you know what? I'm going to start at the end. Um, why do you hate talking about UFOs? Well, there's a few reasons. First, first of all, it's gotten pretty old. It's been, you know, over a decade. Yeah. And uh, second of all, uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad I was involved in the project for a short time. But um, you know, once you leave that and try and enter normal life, mm-hmm. especially if you're peddling your services mm-hmm. in research and development, in the scientific field it becomes really tough for people to take you seriously when you're known as the UFO guy. So it's just hard to kind of divorce all that stuff. That's kind of the same problem that John Lear had, you know, when he was working for the airlines. Uh, It finally got to the point where he had to say no more, and for years, of course, he didn't talk at all. Right. I know he had a lot of problems with that, and I don't know. That's something people just don't take into account. Got fired, uh, actually got fired because of it from one airline. Yeah, that's that's right. That's that's what I heard. Um, how how do you now remember 
that special year with John, or maybe it was more than a year, but the time, period of time you spent with John and you went through all of that, how do you now remember that? Do you remember it fondly? Do you remember it as something you wish you hadn't done, or what? Oh, no, it's, those are fond memories. It was, uh, it was fun and exciting back then, uh, you know, before all the problems started and all the hassles from the feds and whatnot, but... Uh, yeah, back in the early days before all this became popular and Area 51 was on the tip of everybody's tongue, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were sneaking around out there when there were minimal security and, and whatnot, and I had the uh, the test flight schedule at that time, so we knew exactly what was going to happen and what was going on. And Well, you know what I'd like to know? Why did you, I mean, you at that time had a pretty damn good, secure job uh, at an extremely secret place. What made you decide to grab John by the collar and say, hey, buddy, I can show you something? <laughs> I mean, wh- wh- how do you make that choice? Uh, hmm. <laughs> I have to place myself back in that time. Well, there, I, it's one of that, that's kind of a loaded question because there was a lot of stuff going on at that time. And, you know, I kind of make a long story short. At the time, they were just calling me out, um, usually at night, on specific days to go out there when I initially started working down at the test site. Right. And, you know, this was causing problems with my wife at the time because I, I was keeping everything confidential, even from her. Sure. And, you know, here at uh, 11 or 12 o'clock at night, I get this call and, and you I, gotta I go. disappear. And, you know, and this happens time and time again. And Where are you going, honey? I'm sorry, I can't talk about that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm going to work. I'm sure you are. Yeah. You know, and uh, as this goes on for quite a while, suspicions begin to build up. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of kept my friends at, at arm's length at that time because I just didn't want any problems. I wanted all the you know, the, this newfound security to go smoothly. Sure. And uh was pretty much playing with the game. So it started causing suspicion in my friends and, you know, immediate family and that sort of thing. So I decided to take the risk one night and uh just bring everybody out close enough to where they could see a test flight when I knew a test flight was going on. Yeah, but you, you had to know what you were risking, right? Oh, I did. And you know I can't, I can't really say what the actual motivation was back then. You know specifically what made it, you know what made me snap on that day. But uh, were you angry at them? Uh, were you showing? No, not at that point. Were you showing off? There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I mean, if that's what it was. That's what it was. I mean, I, I can understand. No, I, I it, it really wasn't that. You know, and it, that that would actually be an easy answer, but. Uh, it really wasn't that. If I recall, that we didn't start, we didn't start butting heads until after that. Right. But um, that was about it. I think it was to alleviate suspicion and show, you know, several of my friends what was going on. What was really going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how much during those sojourns? How much did you actually get to see along with John? While we were out of the area or while I was actually working there in the area? Well, yeah, they're two separate things. No, I meant when you took John and others up there. 
what how, how is what you saw uh, was it convincing for those who came along with you there was no question in their mind about what they were seeing oh no there there, there was no question i mean john hauled out his even though we got much closer in than you can today near uh-huh. the area well i have no idea what it's like today but at least when i was last in las vegas a few years ago you you really couldn't get very far out on the road but we we drove in close to 10 miles and you can't do that anymore but john hauled out his celestron 10 inch telescope and from there it was quite a view mm-hmm. so uh and you were seeing saucers a saucer yeah a saucer mm-hmm. uh hovering moving doing yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> it just lifted off the ground and hovered around do you have any idea now of course you actually it's another story but i mean you you of course got in to see the real mccoy um you saw how many saucers ultimately at s4 well there were nine total nine total but it, you know these were seen at a distance the only one i actually had direct contact with was the one that was being test flown uh-huh um Do you have any idea how they sufficiently back-engineered whatever in the hell they found inside that saucer to be able to test fly it? Do you have any idea what went on to 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 learn about? I mean, there must have been. I mean, what was it like inside? Inside this thing, what was it like? If you were standing there looking at it inside, what would you be seeing? Well, I guess the most shocking thing about it is it was everything was one color. there was no aesthetics at all everything was a light gray and uh it was as if and i've said this before it was as if the entire device was made out of carved out of wax heated for a bit and cooled off there were no sharp edges no right angles everything was rounded and smooth both inside and out there are no seams or anything like that it looked like, like it had been done by from a mold or something right like a giant injection mold of some sort but um so that's it it's yeah i mean that was probably the most obvious thing you'd notice when you walk in there it just uh didn't look conventional at all any idea again i, I mean from that could you see but uh, what how did they navigate this thing were there buttons were there joysticks were there what sort of i have no idea no idea And so you would have no idea then how they back engineered I would have to be a pretty dangerous thing to take a craft that you just had and try to figure out how to fly the damn thing. I imagine so and from the stories I've heard that it was quite a dangerous thing but unfortunately a lot of this went on way before I ever got there and uh obviously they had at least found out to some extent how some of the systems and subsystems operated. Mhm. Do you know how they got their hands on these in the first place? I mean, how did they get them? I don't know. I don't know. Unfortunately, a lot of the information's compartmentalized, so nobody has no one person has the whole story about everything, and that's typically done in any government project. Absolutely. So nobody can walk away with, you know, the whole project or knowledge of everything, but uh yeah, I I wish I had the complete picture. sure of what was going on even just smaller pieces to the picture i did have i would be very interested in how the navigational system operated that still kind of puzzles me uh 
as do flight controls and, and things of that sort. But And propulsion? This element, what is it, 116? 115, yeah. One, yeah, 115. Element 115. Uh, do you have any concept of how the propulsion system did what it did? I know how a, you know, a jet plane moves from A to B and so forth and so on. I mean, how was this element 115 used to, to, to move the craft? What, what kind of propulsion system is it? It's a gravity propulsion system, something that's uh, <laughs> completely alien to us, if you don't mind me saying that. That's a good word, yeah. The, um, instead of an action-reaction system, I guess the, the analogy I always use is if you go put a bowling ball in the middle of your bed and three feet away from it, push your fist into the bed and push down really hard, the bowling ball rolls towards it. That's correct. And what happens in these craft or in this particular one anyway, there were three gravity amplifiers in them. And what these are are long tubes that are in the belly of the craft. And they're on kind of a universal pivot-type joint, uh, to make it simple. Uh, it's actually something more complicated than that. But what they can do is swing two of the emitters up at one time, focus on a point in front of the craft, and cause a local distortion, and essentially the craft moves forward towards it, just like the bowling ball would. So it's, so it's kind of a, it's falling into a path it's making for itself. Right. It's kind it's kind of constantly rolling downhill, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, which is the opposite of how our vehicles travel. We always accelerate air, throw exhaust out the back, do something to propel something forward, and uh, in the air anyway. And this essentially operates the opposite. Now, is it dependent on a local field of gravity? In other words, obviously these ships are designed to fly uh, through interstellar space. And I wonder what the, if they're using gravity in that manner, then how does local gravity, I wonder, affect them? In other words, the Earth has um, gravity, and when they're within our field, is it any different than when they're in interstellar space? in terms of the way it operates. Yeah, completely. There's two different modes of travel. There's Delta and Omicron. Oh? And the Omicron configuration is when the craft uses one of the emitters to essentially hover on and causes that local distortion with the other two in front of it. Right. Causing it to move forward. This is something I've never heard before. Okay. Oh, the Delta configuration, in fact... There, let me take a step back for a second. That's how the craft is flown in an area of gravity. Now, when you want to leave a local area of gravity, say fly into space, what is done is you transition from Omicron to Delta. And in a lot of the uh, UFO pictures you see occasionally, uh, you'll see these UFOs that these ridiculous angles at 45-degree angles hanging in the middle of the air. Sure. And uh, that the reason for that is that's the transition between the two, two different flight modes. Ah. As the craft lifts off the ground, it has to fly in a gravity-free environment in space with the belly forward. It doesn't fly like a flying saucer does in a science fiction movie. The emitters focus on one point, right. all three of them out in space, 
and that's how the, the thing travels. So you're kind of going from a conventional mode of flight, lifting up in the air, raising the belly, and then aiming that towards your target, and that's how you, you progress. Uh, Bob, knowing what you know about at least the propulsion system, um, what can you imagine that might go wrong and cause a craft to crash as it allegedly did, for example, at Roswell? You know, I've wondered about, <laughs> about that for a while, and I, can't, I really can't see how one of these things could, could crash. Um, but apparently it did. But I just I can't see where a failure is going to typically occur. I don't care if there's a, a lightning storm or what locally is going on, unless there was something that occurred within the craft. I don't think there's any external force that's going to act on it, certainly any natural force, and cause any problems because if you're generating your own gravi gravitational field, you're essentially immune to everything that's going on around you. Hmm. Um, if that field should fail for some reason? Well, yes, yeah, that's why I say if something, if some defect occurred inside or if something was done unintentionally uh, as far as piloting the craft, that I could see happening, but I, I don't buy the story. Somebody comes cruising in from 30 light years away, runs into a thunderstorm, and crashes into the ground. Yeah, you bet. Uh, are you convinced that Roswell was, in fact, a crash of an alien craft? No. Oh, oh, really? Now, there's a surprise. Well, you used um, the word convinced. Um, the only, <laughs> uh, well, I know, it's, there's There's a lot of information that leads me to believe that, but, you know, <laughs> I'm one of the most skeptical people when it comes to flying saucer stories. And I know that almost sounds hypocritical, but that's that's just the way it is. Becoming involved with, you know, one aspect of it uh, kind of cemented that in my mind. But you know, boy, there's lots of wacko stories out there, and and I'm sure you've you've heard your share of them, maybe I, more than anybody. Uh, perhaps I have. Um, but but you know, if if this propulsion system. I mean, it could mean so much for the world. Uh, if we knew how to manipulate gravity in that way, that obviously would be a power source that could be harnessed and utilized in a world where we're running out of coal and oil and all the conventional stuff we've used. Uh, we really badly need another energy source. If, I mean, when you saw these saucers, it was how many years ago now? Well, it was in 88-89. And now, 2003, we're starving for energy. We're probably going to have wars. If Well, we are having wars because of it, and there will be more wars because of it. So why do you suppose, Bob, that all of this has been kept from the world? I don't know. There's also, you know, there's also a tremendous weapon potential here. Uh, that, too. You know, a tremendous weapon potential, maybe more so than energy, because as far as duplicating the, the power system, well, you need access to materials, elements, things of that sort that, that we simply don't have and cannot fabricate. And uh, Well, you know they'd be making weapons. Well, uh, yeah, of course, of course. You know, if you can control, I think I said this on my last interview with you, you know, we have... We have devices that can produce magnetic fields. We have devices that can produce artificial light. But, you know, the big gap is we don't have a machine that can make gravity. 
You know, there's there's nothing that does that. Well, you know, that's, that's a we, big gap in physics. Or we haven't made it public. And, and and the question is, why is this technology still buried? I tell you what, we're at the bottom of the hour. Hold on, Bob. We'll come back and we'll jump right back into the same place. It's what uh, Dr. Greer, who, by the way, will be here tomorrow night. A lot of other people want to know about why is all of this being kept secret. From the high desert, this is Coast to Coast AM. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5, and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast, and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. It is, and my guest, of course, is Bob Lazar, the very controversial Bob Lazar. He's a physicist, and he's actually been where few living human beings have ever been, and that's standing right in front of the real McCoy. UFOs, flying saucers, flying disks, some described, one described, I recall, as the sports model, but the real thing. In fact, uh, I believe what Bob saw resulted in the tester model. Do you remember the tester model of the uh, the saucer? Well, that came from, at least in part, if not in totality, Bob's description. I think that's right. We'll ask about that in a moment. Bob Lazar. All right. The ability to create or manipulate Gravity, some incredible thing to be sure. And uh, Bob, we were talking about the, you know, the energy needs of the world, and then you brought up weapons, and you betcha. I mean, do you believe, for example, that they have in fact uh, developed weapons using this technology, and that we have them now in our arsenal? My own personal belief, absolutely. Absolutely, huh? Absolutely, because I saw evidence of that even when I worked there. Part of the uh, Part of the briefing contained a couple hints about using gravity as a lens or uh, one of the gravity emitters as a lens to focus uh, energy weapons. So, which to take a step back, if you're particle beams and other uh, energy type weapons of that sort disperse quickly in an atmosphere, 
and uh, it's kind of hard to keep a focused, uh, intense beam on your target. But if you can manipulate gravity, uh, you know, I'll, you can really, really change the dynamics of that. So, what, what would such a weapon do? Well, that's the, what they're using a technology there essentially to focus something that's conventional. But if you could maintain the energy density, maintain, uh, you know, essentially a tight focus spot right. of any high intensity energy, you could burn, you know, penetrate, uh, destroy different targets. But also, it's also a great defensive thing because, uh, once you start talking about manipulating gravity and you can create a gravitational field in any plane you wish, you know, things that become possible are are what we consider science fiction. Now the popular shields in Star Trek become possible now. Well, how about the not quite so as fictional uh, suggestions made by Ronald Reagan about Star Wars? Right. Uh, you know, you got to wonder if um, some of what that man said at that time came from some knowledge he might have had about what was possible. It, it could certainly have had. I've heard several people talk about Reagan in that way, and I know he made several of those uh, yes, he did. speeches with uh, making reference to aliens invading the Earth. And, that's right. And whatnot, but uh, yeah, that's, that's very possible. Uh, certainly that would have been one of the early conclusions any military mind would have drawn, and that could have easily made it to the top to the president. Ronald Reagan was somebody who said what was on his mind uh, to the consternation of many around him. And, you know, he'd just say what was on his mind, and mm. uh, to hell with the consequences. So one does have to wonder about that. But still, there it is. Maybe we've got the weapons. We didn't use them in Iraq. No, I think these are... These are way too valuable to use in combat. It, these aren't things that have been produced. You know, we have, if we have any, uh, we're using the parts from the craft and their prototypes, and I don't think anybody is risking putting these valuable things into battle. Hmm. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, unless we've developed another source for the materials uh, or have been able to duplicate them, you know, in the past 10 years, I really don't see that we're going to be going anywhere with that. But uh, who knows? Maybe maybe by this time, research has continued and they've actually come up with something. One of the key things that uh, uh, John Lear did during our inter last interview was he said, Hey, Art, I'm going to take you to a briefing, uh, and you're going to get to say whether you think all of this, uh, there should be total disclosure about everything the United States government has done since day one regarding this whole issue of extraterrestrials, what we've learned, what information we have, how we got it, what we've done with it, the terrible things government has done to protect the secrets and all the rest of it. I'm going to lay it all out for you, and you decide whether or not it should be all publicly disclosed. Uh, you know, everybody in, in ufology is screaming for disclosure. And so I'm wondering about you, Bob, um, if you had a litany of things laid in front of you that we had done, some of them pretty terrible, if you buy it, uh, no, would, you, would you say that there should be full disclosure, or is this something better kept from the American or the world public? Well, 
it's not better kept from the American people because, you know, we're we're supposed to be the government. We hire these guys, elect them to their positions to take care of business. Yes, sir. So nothing is supposed to be kept from us. However, you know, there are other countries. We do have an awful lot of people in the world that just hate us because we're alive. And, uh, you know, if you're concerned about weapons and the proliferation of things of that sort, uh, you do need to keep certain things secret from the rest of the world. However, it's one of the things that I had said initially, go ahead and keep all that stuff secret, mm-hmm. but just admit, hey, by the way, <laughs> you know, a long time ago, we <laughs> ran into some of these things. This this technology is real. There apparently is actual intelligent extraterrestrial life somewhere else. Uh-huh. And, you know, we have a few artifacts and you know, go ahead and release some stuff to the public. So look up here. You know, here's a hinge made on another world. Just something generic. And, uh, you know, keep all the other stuff secret. But then I can also see the flip side of that. That's going to whet everybody's appetite, and there's going to be a furor over, you know, disclosing the rest of the information. And if the government's been keeping that for secret for so long, what else have they been keeping secret? But well, yes. I don't see the government <laughs> coming clean with any of this stuff. I mean, they're they're up to all kinds of no good. So, uh, do you believe that there is a, a government uh, behind the government? You know, sort of pulling the strings, as it were. I don't know about that. I think ours is pretty. <laughs> screwed up as it is, so I don't think it needs anybody else pulling any strings. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, but surely there is uh, some method for keeping this gigantic secret, and not uh, not all politicians, uh, nor even perhaps uh, all presidents, are told about the existence of that. Do you believe that? No, I think yeah, I think very few people know. And one of the things they told me, which was one of my first comments there when I finally knew what I was working on. Uh, how do you guys keep this secret? Yeah. And what they told me was, this is the easiest thing in the world to keep secret, because it's so unbelievable. <laughs> and, you know, when you really think about it, they're right. Well, they are, because every, everything just gets uh, dismissed or perhaps erased. How much anger do you uh, have for them now? I mean, what they did to you. They virtually erased your life. They brought a steel fist right down in the middle of your life and uh, kind of ruined things for quite a while for for you. Well, I don't know. I've tried to put this out of my mind. You know, as I fight to try and just put this behind me and forget about everything, you know, a, lo- a lot of people uh, keep prodding me for information and, you know, the, it resurfaces in my mind. But for the most part, I, I just try and get rid of this. Uh, at the time, sure, I was pissed off. Uh, more so than you can possibly imagine. Mm. And, uh, you know, as my friends at that time recall, I drove around in my little 280Z with an Uzi. You know, that's the kind of trouble I expected, and I didn't go anywhere without it. But, uh, you know, times have changed. A lot of time has gone by, and uh, I don't know. It's It's kind of hard to say. Yeah, it's always in the back of my mind, but, you know, what am I going to do? To this day, I'm still fighting to get some... Uh, paperwork and well, some things I can't even talk about. But back, back to the way it was, so you, I can be a normal person. You obviously thought they were going to kill you. Oh, no question. That um, was the impetus for going 
on the news that way. Yeah, night. yeah, and and uh, the famous or infamous Channel Eight uh, thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you wanted to tell everybody about that because, of course, not everybody in the rest of the country uh, either recalls or knew about what happened with regard to that. Um, how, explain exactly how that came down. Well, hmm, <laughs> I, I'm wondering how far I should go back. Well, essentially, after I left the project, um, and it wasn't really voluntary, but uh, mm, I'm <laughs> trying to remember exactly what happened then. I think, it, in fact, I think it was John. That interview took place at John Lear's house. Um, it was George Knapp that talked you into it, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a combination of both. I think I had I had gone down to John Lear's house and uh, really was afraid to go home at that time and hid out there for a while. And John said, why don't you go talk to George Knapp and maybe if the stuff's all over the news, they'll just leave you alone. It'd be your way of kind of pushing back. So. George Knapp, folks, is a reporter for Channel 8, um, the uh, CBS affiliate in Las Vegas. And yeah, George- he was... Uh, well, I'm sorry for interrupting. Uh, no, that's right. George is just a very heavy-duty uh, investigative reporter for that station, and um, I guess he was sort of doing stories on John Lear at that time, and then somehow you got involved in this, and and then and then if I remember correctly, uh, you were put on television in a shadow behind something, or I can't remember. Yeah, it was just a backlit shadow, so. Um... You know, you couldn't recognize who I was, and the pseudonym I used was the name of my boss at the time, which was kind of a little smack in the face to say, hey, just back off and leave me alone. And apparently that caused a, quite a stir, and I got a call shortly after that. And needless to say, they were pretty upset with that move. Do you think but, John, well, I bet they were. Do you, do you think John wanted you to do it to, in essence, back him up at that point? Oh, I'm sure. At that time... Now, I mean, you, you have to look at things at that time. First of all, I got into the project thinking I was going to be working on a new fighter, a propulsion system for a new fighter aircraft. Yes. And uh, I was certainly not one of the people that believed in UFOs. These were people that were just, you know, something to laugh at as far as I was concerned. So um, I already lost my train of thought. Well, let me put you back in that chair and that night. When the interview got done, uh, was done, what what did you say to the audience that night? Well, that was essentially just admitting that there were nine craft out there that they were actively back engineering, and you know, attempting to duplicate the power and propulsion system of the craft. And that's that's basically about all that was said. I mean, there were a few details <laughs> about where it was. And that was enough. That's like taking a match and throwing it on gasoline. What was the reaction like after that? Uh, after oh, it was it was pretty widespread. Yeah, I bet. it went all over the place. If it, you know, I had I had seen uh, new because they interrupted. Well, I don't know if they interrupted it, but it was in the middle of the five o'clock news. They oh yeah, did a live broadcast and and I've seen that exact broadcast repeated on Japanese television and you know in Germany. So it it made the world fast. What was the nickname you used? For that, that interview, Dennis. Dennis, yeah, that's right. They called you 
Dennis. It's a long time ago now. I must have taken great big ones to sit in that chair and, <laughs> and say that on television. <laughs> yeah, Dennis Mariani was my supervisor at that time. I see. Um, okay, so after that story broke, um, I mean, you must have, you and John probably just sat back and watched the world explode around you. Well, kind of. Yeah, I mean, at that time, you know, John Lear was out there himself saying that uh, there were flying saucers at the test site and you know, all kinds of stuff that I thought was pretty silly. But uh, as it turned out, you know, he was right. I don't know what information source he had at that time, but... Uh, he had been telling you and saying that, so I guess maybe maybe that's the reason that you went to John, uh, as, as dragging him along, saying, hey, I got something to show you. Maybe maybe you just sort of felt as though you owed it to him in some way, huh? Uh, maybe. I can't. I actually can't remember the exact reason, but uh, it was just the people around me at the time I felt obligated to at least give a peek to. Wasn't the, uh, the, the, tester, the tester company that makes models came out with a model of a UFO of a flying saucer? Mm -hmm. uh, quite a unique um, scale model of a flying saucer. I have one of them. And um, how much of your input was used to create that model? Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, John Andrews from Testers just sat down and said, hey, we want to make a model of this, and you want to help us or not? And I said, yeah, okay, this is it. And <laughs> yeah, okay. they brought uh, a couple guys in and... Um, you know, off the top of my head, I tried to remember some dimensions, and we did some initial drawings, and the craft just didn't look right. And he had a couple friends that were, I don't quite remember what they were they were skilled in, but in any case, they were able to uh, get the correct dimensions by me recognizing the sizes of known objects, at various distances, sure. and they kind of, you know, back-engineered it from that, and were able to get uh, the proper dimensions. And when the drawing was done, it, that did that did look correct. And I think I'm more comfortable with the the final drawings and um, dimensions they came up with. And it was, I think, it came up like to 52.8 feet in diameter or something like that. Well, when you look at the the tester model today, uh, does uh, do you look at that and say, yup? That's yeah. what I saw. Yeah, no, no question. But they they hit the nail on the head with that. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. How long a process was that for you to accurately finally? You know, I guess it's like uh, going to a police station and going to a sketch artist and have them finally come up with something that matches, you know, the person you saw. If it, I remember it, it took a while. Um, it probably took a month on and off of uh, going over. Drawings, drawing the layout over and over again, and you know having these these guys look at it and then scale it up and see if it if things fit. And, but it 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 did take it did take quite a while. All right, uh, am I right or wrong? Do you, do you really have do you own a, a missile silo in Roswell, New Mexico? Yeah, John Ferrat and I have. Uh, a project going down there, and uh, it's it yeah it's a, a decommissioned nuclear missile silo just outside of Roswell, and it's not like I wanted a 
a place outside of Roswell. It just happened to be where it in was. Roswell, yeah. But I mean, how does the president go about getting a missile silo in the first place? I mean, who do you approach? Well, I think they're actually on the internet. If you type in missile silo, there are there are <laughs> a few left for sale, but they are they are pretty neat. It's uh I believe the the main where the missile sits is 200 feet deep and uh you know, these places are uh quite a deal compared to what the government paid for them. I think they paid oh. close to $13 million just for the concrete oh, I'll bet. to build these places. And it, it's literally bomb-proof. You can set a you know, a thermonuclear bomb on the door and set it off and still be drinking beer inside for a while. Anyway. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but, why, uh, why did you want a silo? Oh, it was cool. Just because it's cool? <laughs> yeah. Well, we also have some other plans for it, but... Uh, that you can or can't talk about. Nah, I'm really not. You obligated really can't to talk, talk about. about. Yeah, I see. Um, but so this is a full decommissioned nuclear missile silo. Yeah. In Roswell. Yeah. <sighs> Just not something that uh, the average person would have or want. And I wish I knew what you were going to do with it, but you just you can't talk about that at all, huh? Well. Not really. I can I can tell you some of the things we're not doing with it. We had uh, You're not launching missiles. We, we yeah, hope. unfortunately, I couldn't find a reload kit for the place, but uh, <laughs> I would certainly have bought one if I could. I um, see. All right, uh, hold that thought. We'll be we'll be right back. It's the top of the hour. My guest is Bob Lazar. He does. He owns a missile silo in Roswell, New Mexico, and he'll tell us shortly things that. Uh, well, I guess he's not going to tell us. He's going to tell us things you can't do with it, or he can't do with it, or maybe things that he will do with it. We'll see what we can pry out of him next. Code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from East of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From West of the Rockies, call Art at 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art Bell by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing Option 5, and dialing toll-free 893 0903 from coast to coast and worldwide on the internet this is coast to coast am with art bell i liked his answer actually why would you own a missile why would you buy a missile silo well because it's cool now you see i can understand that answer because it's cool 
Indeed, owning a missile silo would be cool. Bob Lazar owns one, and he's pretty cool, and he'll be right back. Once again, Bob Lazar. Bob, you said you could describe some things that, what, you, you can't do, or you might Well, one do, thing or... I do have to correct is um, uh, my partner, John Ferrat and I, are involved in the silo, and John has far more invested in it than I do. So just to say that it's mine personally, so you have is not part of a silo. <laughs> I guess in in the respect. Um, I mean, but did you? There's it had to be more. Well, maybe there didn't. I, I, you know, I was going to actually put a rocket on my front lawn to impress my neighbors. <laughs> I thought it'd be cool. I mean, if you're a neighbor and you see a rocket go up in a guy's lawn. Huh. So, do you own a silo for the same reason? Just for, just, well, you said it. it's cool. It is Well, cool. no, we, we actually have some serious plans for it. I thought you might. And, uh, you know, you don't invest all kinds of money just for the hell of it. But um, it, it's amazing the amount of rumors that start. And generally, for some reason, when my name's involved somewhere, all kinds of ridiculous stories pop out of the woodwork. But mm. uh, I think even Channel 8 carried that story in Las Vegas. Um, there, And in fact, when I was down at the silo, uh, we got a call from the police in Roswell. Oh. And they sounded kind of embarrassed and said, uh, you know, we're going to have to come down and check out the facility there. And we asked why, and there was kind of a hesitation, and they said, I know this sounds crazy, but, you know, we have people that actually have come down to the station and said that they believe you're holding alien hostages underground in, in the, in the silo. silo. Yeah, and, you know, because they filed the report, they actually went down. They're obligated to go check things out, so they had to come down and verify that there's no aliens being held hostage in there. They actually did that? Yeah, yeah, they did that while I was there. And um, they now that's to... a story in itself. That got reported. I missed that one. Well, that was most recently before I moved to New Mexico. Um, what had happened was uh, just a, a a random guy drove out there and was planning on committing suicide. Now, of all the places in the world, this guy could have gone to kill himself. He drove down the road to the silo, parked on top of it and set his car on fire or something like that. Okay. Anyway, the thing burnt to the ground, and the guy was dead. And uh, prior to that, there's also wild animals, antelope, cattle, whatever in the area, and there's been a couple dead cows out there. So the connection between cattle mutilations and all this stuff started brewing in the minds of some people. So somehow it got around that I was developing a death ray in this underground facility, and that I had tested it on cattle, which is why they were dead. And, of course, a guy came driving down the road, and I vaporized his car and killed him. I anyway, see. And, not, and you maintain that none of this is true. No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But uh, it's just amazing, the stories that get started. Well, okay, of course, you are Bob Lazar. There is a certain aura around you. And when you connect that with buying a missile silo, people's imaginations naturally go berserk. <laughs> well, berserk is a good word. But, but, then again, you are Bob Lazar. It is a missile silo, and 
to be honest, you haven't actually answered my question yet about what you're going to do with it, and you say you can't answer that question, and you know that's going to feed rumors. It's got me thinking. <laughs> okay, well, all right. Well, I, hey, just, you know, I just can't help that. Yeah, Bob, over the years, um, especially uh, in, in, the, in that time period uh, when you were with John and the whole thing was coming down, um, how much, and you've done a number of public interviews, several with me, how much is left that you can't talk about? Can't? Can't, can't, or unable to. Concerning the UFO information. The whole thing, yeah. Information. Yeah. Uh, not a whole lot. But some. There's, there's just a couple little tidbits, and I think I've told you that before. There's a couple things that I need, and this isn't to burn anybody and hold information back, but it's in case somebody claims that they were involved with the project or work there. There are a couple things that only those people will know, and any time that anybody brings those up when questioned by me, I'll know. Right. So that's that's the only reason. There's there's just a few little bits and pieces of information here and there. All righty, then then let's go down that road for a second. I mean, there there are other others like you, Bob, who worked out in and saw all of that. Um, obviously, there had to be quite a number over the years of people who became aware of that knowledge. Why why are there not a lot more Bob Lazars out there? I don't know. Initially, I was not supposed to be the only one that came forward. But, uh, Not supposed to be? No. You mean you had an agreement with someone? Well, Barry, the guy that I worked with there, uh, was supposed to additionally come forward, but uh, that apparently never happened, so I was left out there in the dark. Twisting in the breeze. Mm -hmm. So Barry, I, I don't know what happened. It, so this Barry had, had promised you he would step forward with you? Well, kind of, and... You know, I wonder if it's wise, really, to, to comment too much on that, because mm -hmm. I don't know what Barry's situation is now. But mm -hmm. we had, you know, we had talked about things. But if somebody were to come forward and claim they had seen what you saw, they also know it to be true because they worked there, you would have a couple of questions you'd be able to ask them that would verify the authenticity. Oh, of sure. Instantaneously. Instantaneously. Yeah. All right. Now, why did you move? I mean, you've been a very long-time desert rat. Uh, out here in the Las Vegas area nearby me and, of course, uh, the infamous area 51S4 and all the rest. I mean, you lived here so long. Why would you move? Um, you know, after a while, Las Vegas gets to you. I was there and uh, <laughs> certainly working at the test site uh, was fascinating. Mm -hmm. And um, a little bit of the work I did there when I initially moved to Las Vegas. But after that... Um, being out of the scientific field, I, I really went stagnant and really didn't produce or do anything that I really considered worthwhile and just needed to get out of the Las Vegas environment completely. And uh, New Mexico, especially around the Albuquerque area, you know, you have two of the most prominent oh, yeah. national nuclear labs here, Los Alamos and Sandia and you know the cities here are filled with PhD scientists, and it it just feel it felt good to get back into into the mainstream of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, in the short time I was here, in the first eighteen months, uh, I just began to actually produce 
what I consider decent work. I started filing for patents and, uh, you know, as you know, working on the hydrogen system and uh Yeah, I want to talk a little bit things. about that, as a matter of fact. Yeah, patents and uh, on hydrogen fuel systems, and I, I know you've had them in your car. You've run your car on hydrogen, did it for a long time, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever patents you have, uh, what's this about a SWAT team coming in and grabbing all of your uh, data and computers? I was. You know, I have to stop you there. We can't even touch that one. I spoke to my attorney after uh, I sent that. Oh, really? email. no kidding. No, we got to totally just not talk let about that, that, huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, at any rate, now that you're back or you're in New Mexico, you feel like you're you're doing good work in in your area once again. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah. I guess it's just a different mindset, and also the immediate area that I live in. You know, moving up isolated in in the mountains in the middle of a forest, and you know, on a lot of acres of land, and uh, is different than living right in the middle of Las Vegas and a you know, typically in town. So it's just, uh, it's a freer environment, and it, uh, I'm building my own research lab here, and uh, I don't know, it's it's a lot more fertile ground for, for thinking and actually doing something serious. Well, I do get the sense there is still an awful lot you can't talk about. You said a couple of things, but then we can, we keep touching on uh, several things that still, there's aspects of it that you can't talk about. So uh, I would say a lot of your life still is surrounded by having to keep secrets. Are you good at keeping secrets? <laughs> no, I think it's been proven pretty well that I can't <laughs> do that. But it drives me crazy because the thing I would love, I could spend four hours on the phone more pissed off than you can imagine talking about this SWAT team thing, but I, my hands are tied right now. And oh, no. It, I, maybe what, in the future I can yeah. say something about yeah, no, that. But. No, attorneys are that way. Mm-hmm. I, I know when there's ongoing stuff. Uh, and they're right, of course. Ultimately, they're right. But it does kill you not to be able to talk about something. Yes, it does. Uh-huh. Um, do you think that you're working on, without asking you specifically what you're working on, did any of let's try it this way? Did any of your experience at S4 and what you saw and what you learned technically have application in any work that you're either doing now or contemplating? Yes. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, my! Uh, yes. Um, now I, I'm obligated to ask you about your project, what what you envision, what you're doing, even in general terms. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're working on? Well, there's a, there's, I, actually I'm overburdened with projects in progress. Mm. Um, as mentioned, as you mentioned, the, the hydrogen fuel systems, uh, that's actually something I've been working on since the late 70s. And uh, that's finally come to fruition, and a lot of the materials needed long-term testing, and they've certainly had it now. Hmm. Um, that's per- probably per- the biggest. Okay, perhaps you uh, can answer a hydrogen question for me. Now, it's hydrogen is being touted. Even the president of the United States is touting it as the way to go. And But um, there are others, Bob, who say, look... Um, this is, in a way, all foolishness because, you know, 
to create hydrogen in amounts that would be good for the public to use, you know, cell, energy cells, fuel cells, uh, would require manufacturing, pollution, the use of energy. In other words, all you're really doing is finding a new storage facility and way to store energy that still has to be uh, produced, frankly, in the old-fashioned way. No, not really. Well, then lay it on me. Not really how. Well, first of all, there's there's two trains of thought here. Um, the automotive industry, the president and his advisors, are all going down the fuel cell path. And for those that don't know, a fuel cell is a device that takes gaseous hydrogen and oxygen, combines them, and makes electricity. And little fuel cell water dribbles out of it because when the hydrogen and oxygen combine... That's the only the only byproduct is water. Right. And, and so you uh, could use these in cars or to power homes or whatever, right? Right. Well, you can use these things and the, the, their car of the future has fuel cells and an electric motor and that's how the car is powered. Now, that's that's very efficient. It's around 35% efficient okay. uh, overall. And uh, that is pretty neat. However, all the technology is not there. The vehicles will be fantastically expensive. None really exist right now in, in production. Hmm. And what about the billion cars that are on the road now? <laughs> what, is everybody going to dish out $175,000 for a new car? And on top of that, they want to just replace gasoline pumps with hydrogen pumps and sell you the fuel again. All right. So, uh, let's get back to refuting this. In other words... And no matter how it works, Bob, and it's, it sounds like you're almost more on the negative than the positive side of this, but, I mean, no matter how it works, aren't conventional fuels going to have to be used in copious amounts to produce these cylinders of, of, uh, of hydrogen? No, I don't. How do you The system figure? that I came up with, first of all, converts a conventional car to burn hydrogen conventionally. And, and no uh, fuel. with how much cost? Well... Let me get to that in a second. Right. The actual conversion is not that difficult, not that terribly expensive. Um, I have I have not used any energy producing any of the hydrogen that I make as far as power off the grid, fossil fuels, or whatnot. Hydrogen is easily electrolyzed by water. You know, if you need to prove it to yourself, take a 12-volt battery, put both wires in the water, add a pinch of salt, and you'll see bubbles coming off of one side. Well, some off the other two. That's and that would be hydrogen. Right. Anyway, it's easily produced, and it can be produced uh, with solar panels or a wind turbine. I use solar panels. That's where all my hydrogen comes from. I fill up the Corvette with it, and we drive 700 miles on it. And the car will also run on gasoline. All right. So, all that's, right. Uh, so that's perfected. I mean, it works, right? Right, and it, it's worked for years and years and years. All right, let's say I buy a conventional automobile for, I don't know, 20, 30 grand, something like that. Um, what would it cost to convert a car like that to hydrogen? You're, well, the big, the big hang-up right now has been the actual storage medium. You don't want to store hydrogen as just a compressed gas because it's dangerous, it's flammable, and on top of that, you need thousands of times more space to hold the hydrogen than you would an equivalent amount of gasoline. Okay. So it, it just doesn't work. Right. You don't want to store it liquid because that's cryogenic. It's dangerous. It's just a big thermos bottle in your tank, and it's another big headache. The, the third way is the best way, 
and that's a metal hydride. And this is the granular material that absorbs hydrogen like a sponge absorbs water. Mm -hmm. And it only releases the hydrogen when it's heated, and when it's not being heated, I can fire incendiary bullets through the hydride tank, and it just smolders like a cigarette. So it's extremely safe. Wow. And this is the material that I store the hydrogen in, in the vehicles and for home use. Is this the subject of a patent? Yes. It is. Yeah. Now, there are various hydride materials, and some were actually very difficult to get a hold of because some of them, like lithium-6 deuteride, which is a, a hydride, actually, well, the material I use is a hydride, the only use for that material is in thermonuclear bombs, and it's restricted obviously restricted for sale. Yes. Um, and the only reason some of these hydrides are manufactured was for the weapons industry, and they're done so in such small quantities, the cost was very high. Mm. For instance, to convert the Corvette just for the tanks of hydride, we were looking at $15,000 without the hydrogen conversion itself. So this is, you know, that's, that's a, a pretty large price tag. Out of line right now. Right. But if if, if this pro, uh, whole thing were perfected and you had access to the materials and it were done in mass, I'd like to get some idea of what it would cost to convert. Well, we've been working with the hydride manufacturers, and uh, they promise a 70% reduction in cost in volume production. So Does that make it viable? Very much so. I mean, wouldn't you pay... Between forty five hundred and six thousand dollars to have your car converted, you'll have your hydrogen generator at home, so you can drive locally and even up to seven hundred miles away on hydrogen. And if you want, you can always put gas in the tank, and the car will switch over to gasoline when uh, you know when well, necessary. Okay, I've always wanted to know: Would I need to do that? Uh, would hydrogen give me the same uh, equal amount of horsepower? Would I be happy with a hydrogen fuel? You get a little less, you know. For instance, in a in a larger engine. In fact, that's the reason we converted the Corvette. Was uh, a lot of these alternate fuel cars, you see little Ford Escorts and these little tiny motors, and it leaves everybody wondering, well, can't you power something substantial? Mm -hmm. So we purposely did a large V8 engine, and uh, yeah, it still lights up the tires and you know screams away. There's a little loss in horsepower, but in a in a large engine, you're not going to detect a 10% loss in horsepower. But you're still having a lot of fun, though. I mean, it's. Uh... It's enough horsepower that, that generally most people are going to be happy campers. Oh, sure, and most people are willing to pay that price tag if they never, ever have to go to a gas station again. And who wouldn't? On top of that, you're not supporting you know, the oil cartel that's right. or anything else that's going on or polluting the air. All right, I'll hold it right there. Bob has a Corvette converted to hydrogen, and he's had that for a long time, and I guess the rest of the world is yet to come. We'll continue to talk with Bob Lazar, who knows lots of things. We'll see what we can pry from him as the hours continue. From the high desert, I'm Art Bell.
to talk with Art Bell. Call the Wild Card Line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5 and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Bet on it. We'll get questions uh, from all of you for Bob Lazar coming up in the next uh, hour. Listen, check out my webcam. By popular demand, I did put up a picture of the tester model. I'm holding the tester model for you in case you've never seen it. There it is. That's Bob's. Accurate recollection of what he saw at Area S4 that I'm holding in my hands. That's on my webcam. Top left-hand side of the coastcoastam.com website. By the way, there may be, in fact, we know there are other Bob Lazars out there. And if there are, I'd like to encourage you to contact me. We'll work it out. Trust me, a lot of people uh, get a little older now, and perhaps they'd like to talk about the things they saw up there. If you would, email me. My email address is artbell at mindspring.com. That's artbell, A-R-T-B-E-L-L, at mindspring.com. So if you're another Bob Lazar out there and you figure the time is right for you and you want to tell your story, I'm your guy. That's the way to get me. Artbell at mindspring.com. Bob Lazar will be right back. And by the way, it's probably going to screw up my little scenario pleading for some more Bob Lazars to come forward. But out of curiosity, uh, Bob, uh, tonight all across uh, the world, people who have been involved uh, up at Area 51, S4, have seen what you have seen. These people, they're probably listening, Bob. A lot of them are listening. You can be sure of it, actually. And so... What would you say to these um, these people? Would, would would you say, you know what, Art's right. Why don't you go ahead and email them, and why don't you come on and tell what you know? Would you advise them to do that? <laughs> no. no. No? I knew you'd screw it up. <laughs> don't tell anybody what you know. Just, <laughs> just take my word for it. I knew you'd do that. that. I knew it. Yeah, well, that, that, that really is my message. Just forget it. Forget it, huh? Yeah, just forget it. Don't bother saying anything. It's not worth the hassle. It's not worth it. It's not. And for the most part, nobody's going to believe what you have to say anyway, so don't don't even think of doing it. Oh, thanks for the help. I'm, I'm sorry, but you asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I knew, I knew, I guess, what I was in for. Um, okay, well, I know, but still, all right, but let me take the other side of it, Bob. Uh, let, let's fight this a little bit. Um, the, there's a lot of people out there, like Stephen Greer, who I have on tomorrow night, and they really do make a compelling, damn strong case that, gosh, Darn it all, if we've been visited by aliens, if they've really been here, if we have their craft, their technology, and even bodies, and this is such an incredibly large story, so important to the human race, that nobody has a right to keep anything like this secret, and it should be told, it should be out in the open, and if these Bob Lazars don't come in and talk to me and others, 
then how in the hell are we ever going to find out? Because you said it yourself, the government sure isn't going to tell us. Yeah, and, and I agree with that completely. Well, then how can you say that? <laughs> well, from personal experience. <laughs> yeah, in other words, you're not really a crusader at all, are you? No. You're not? No. No. I'm not involved in UFO research. I don't I follow the stories. I don't do lectures. I don't... Uh, I know you don't. You know, I, I, I don't do any of that stuff. You know, I, I try and put it behind me, you know, and a, a lot of people really... You know, have the drive to get this stuff uncovered, but uh, generally those are the people that haven't been involved with anything. And uh, you know, sticking your neck out on the line really does change your life forever, and it's it it's not a positive thing. Uh, you know, people really get the wrong impression. They think that you know this is a uh, you know a big boost in some way to you, and and it's not by any stretch of the imagination. So I, you know, why would I recommend somebody do that? Well, a lot of people, Bob, think that uh, I mean, when they have these reality TV shows and people line up for blocks and wait two days through the ice and the cold to get a chance to be, you know, have FaceTime on television. We do live in that kind of world, and so some people suspect your motive is that. But um, yeah, but I hate being on TV. I hate doing interviews, and I don't do lectures and all that. How could that possibly be my motivation? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I, I believe me, I do understand. Do you have any knowledge, Diane? Up in Washington, wants to know. I get a computer message every now and then. A lot of them actually. Uh, do you have any knowledge? It's a good question. Of any agreement between any group of aliens and humans or the U.S. government? Do you? believe that to be true or know it to be true, that there is some understanding. I, I've heard rumors of that uh, from various sources, but, um, you know, I, I don't have any first-hand knowledge of an actual Ag agreement, agreement that yeah. was cut between anybody. Uh, there's a lot of speculation, of course, about an agreement to allow some human beings, for example, to be abducted, you know, for research in return for let's say, technology, uh, and John Lear alluded to all that and said that they, in essence, reneged on that aspect of what was supposed to be a deal. Of course, uh, to make, you, you know, you'd never make that kind of thing public. If you had made a deal to shuffle off some of your citizens at random to guys who were going to do God knows what to them, chop them up, cut them up, whatever they do, you could never talk about that ever. Uh, I, I don't know. I find that kind of hard to believe. Um, so then John has gone too far for you. <laughs> Is that right? I'm sure he's listening. Yeah, I'm sure he's listening. Yeah, that John knows he's gone too far for me. John's convinced that there are people living on, or some sort of being, beings living on, on uh, that, Venus and some other local planet. That's and, right. Uh, and that drives me crazy. Does it? It, it? Yeah, it absolutely does. And a bunch of the things he says. Well, he's convinced there are artifacts on the moon, gigantic artifacts on the moon and Mars. Um, and others have said that as well. Richard C. Hoagland and others have said there are uh, things on, on the moon. Uh, in fact, you know what? There, there's speculation that the President of the United States, uh, Mr., uh, George Bush, is about to make a speech in which he said he's going to say the United States is going to go back to the moon. There's going to be a shuttle mission to go back to the moon. I heard that. Yeah. Yeah, I heard he's supposed to make some sort of announcement. Uh, and, uh, and we would do it presumably with a shuttle. 
which is really, really? yeah, really interesting. How are you going to get the shuttle? I don't ask me. I have no idea, but that, that's what I'm hearing. And and actually, I've I've heard Mr. Hoagland say it's possible. I mean, the, you know, if they used every, in other words, once I think Richard has said or someone said, once you get into orbit, uh, you're halfway to anywhere. Well, sure, but if you want to actually get on the moon, it's a different story. You know, the the orbiter wasn't designed to do that at all, and in fact, it needs to be replaced with something else. Yeah, it's getting pretty old. Yeah. Still, uh, that's apparently what's going to be announced. I could turn out to be wrong, but I don't know of any other spacecraft that we have in uh, current production that would get us to the moon. Do you? No, but, uh, you know, we do, st- we do still have a Saturn V sitting there. A uh, Saturn V could do it. Uh, well, it was designed to do it with the lunar module and everything. It's sitting there in Florida. Just, yeah. You know, yeah, dust it, the thing off and launch it because know, they stopped the program would, right, you know. You think it would be all right? Not like old ammunition? I mean, it's pretty old now. Well, you know, it's for the most part, you know, it's metal and components. Just sit there with something you know that works. Mm. Don't do what the United States typically does and reinvent the wheel constantly. Mm. That got us to the moon many times. It worked. Just update it with some modern materials, electronics, and components and use it since it's there and stop spending huge amounts of money doing nothing. What what can you imagine our motivation would be for going back to the moon? I mean, we did go, uh, most people believe, uh, something, actually I don't think we even went, but uh, we I believe we went and we got rocks and we didn't get very many surprises, and so what could we do on the moon today that we didn't do then? That always seemed more sensible to me to to make a small moon base as opposed to a space station. Um, oh, really? Why? Well, for various reasons. First of all, the space station is limited in what it can do. I, and I know a moon base is much more difficult to get to. It doesn't have to be large, but you can at least try uh, some and test out some technology on, you know, on trying to manufacture fuel, do some small refining, see what you can get from the surrounding environment. You know, there there have been reports, I think, the, I don't know, was it the Cassini? Some radar mapping craft over the past four or five years detected that there were supposedly large frozen areas of water That's correct, on yes. the moon. Right. However, they just went over that data again and had another arbiter and now are refuting some of that. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if you've got water, you've got energy, and you've got the possibility for all kinds of stuff. But uh, So we're back to a foggy area. There may not be enough water there to manufacture fuel, which would be a necessity. Right. So... Right. Uh, that would make it uh, uninhabitable if if uh, if they're completely reversing themselves now. It's kind of strange to me. A lot of people believe, uh, Bob, that there are things on the moon, large glass structures, incredible things that were hidden from the uh, the world when we went to the moon and have been hidden ever since. And and that that's the reason they say we haven't gone back. I believe John is one of the people who believes that. Yeah, he is. I'm not one of the people that believes that. You are not? uh, No. No, absolutely not. Then why go back, Bob? Exploration. You know, why go to the top of the mountain? You know, it's a completely different world now than it was in the 60s. There's a lot more technology, so there's, there's a lot more we can investigate there. You know, and the original reason to go to the moon was never to research the moon. You know, aside from beating the Russians there, the original intention 
was only to see the feasibility or to investigate the feasibility of making a small base there and launching a Mars mission from the moon. This was all about going to Mars. The moon was only supposed to be because it would be easier to get there from the moon, less gravity, so on and so forth. Sure. And that was just to be looked upon as a, you know, as a potential launching site for a Mars mission. So the, the interest was never in the moon. I mean, we, we pretty much knew it was just a rock up there anyway. The interest is, you know, has always been in Mars, but Mars isn't that easy to get to. Unless you had a moon base, and that would help. Well, yeah, that would help. It's, it's a shortcut, and, uh, you know, you could store fuel there. There would be, you know, if, if plans had gone how they should have, uh, you know, maybe we would have already been to Mars. But I think that's, that's the frontier we should look at, is investigating that, or go to, go to Europa. There's plenty of things in our immediate solar system that are, you know, potentially fascinating, and, you know, Europa has probably the best chance of life, uh, you know, in our solar system, and, you know, even the hardcore skeptics at NASA pretty much agree there's a good chance there's something in the oceans there, so. But, Bob, if we've got technology that can manipulate gravity, and damn, it was back in the early 90s when you knew that we had that. Uh, here we are launching, whether it's a Saturn V or a shuttle or however we get back to limp back to the moon. Um, and for what reason, I'm not sure about, but what, whatever. Uh, we're using ancient buggy-like technology compared to what you know exists now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't care what spacecraft they've come up with. In my eyes, they still look like fireworks. And they've proven themselves to be that on occasion. Yes. But it's, uh, it, it is. It's archaic technology, and we do have something that operates differently. However, it has limited fuel, a limited lifespan, and we don't want to lose it. So, it, it And we're, as far as I knew at the time, we couldn't even come close to duplicating even the, the, the most basic parts of the device. So it, uh, you know, what are you left with? You're left with so your own archaic method of transportation to yeah. other planets, and so you can only investigate what's going on around you. So and then, Bob, stuck. we have been unable to decipher the, the manner in which, or duplicate the manner in which gravity is manipulated by the devices on, on the craft that you saw. Obviously, we failed, or what? I, in other words, otherwise, we'd be using this technology, so we failed? Well, it, quite possibly. Now, again, I hesitate because I'm talking about my knowledge from the early 90s and late 80s. Uh -huh. I don't know what's happened up till today. But uh, as far as I knew back then, yeah, we've we failed. That's that's the bottom line. Do we're you not going to be duplicating that. Do you think these craft, uh, when tested, were taken outside the Earth's atmosphere? No. You do not? No, I, I know that for a fact. For a fact? Yeah. I don't, I don't, well. Well? <laughs> what, why? I just, well, no, go ahead. Mm. Just whisper it in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I pretty much know that for a fact. Um, why, out of curiosity? This is what, we're getting right real close to one of the areas that I said that I, I purposely don't talk about so I know if anybody's been involved with a project, which has to do 
with the craft and where it's gone. Oh. So that, that, this is why you're hearing my hesitation on this. Okay, well, the, the next thing out of my mouth was going to be, why do you think? If we thought or we had... Well, let's, look, a, this is a very valuable article, and it's an operating craft. I don't know if the other crafts were operating. We know this one does. There's only one of them. Uh, you know, so in other words, one of a kind of thing. Would you risk taking this out of, you know, of the Earth's gravitational pull and losing it in space? Yeah, you know. it's a very good point. It's a very good point. You know, this you, is their prized possession. And no you one. believe we still have that safely wherever? By the way, do you think it's still up there, or do you think it's been moved? And if so, where do you suppose? I don't know. You know, I always thought that that was an odd place to put it. Because in the uh, you know early days of the nuclear weapon development, some of the best places that they kept everything were in the South Pacific, like Kwajalein Island and and things of that sort. And uh, it's a good point. You, know, they, you, you don't have any looky loos there. You no. have no hassles from from anybody. You're in the middle of nowhere, and nobody can get there without you seeing them. What and, a uh, tremendous point! And that's where. I would have put it. I wouldn't have built this secret base in the middle of Nevada, you know, outside of Las Vegas. The and the only reason they moved the nuclear test site to Nevada was because it was just too expensive running supplies back and forth and all the personnel to the South Pacific. Well, you don't have that problem with the ET program because it's limited personnel, limited supplies, and uh, you know, go hide it in the middle of the ocean on an island like they did with everything else. So uh, if I was going to put it somewhere, that's where it would be. Why do you think instead it ended up here in Nevada? I don't know. Huh. I don't know. Uh, I mean, because obviously there are going to be more people uh, conceivably seeing w what's going on. Uh, There's got to be a reason. Somebody I, I, they, must have, you know. I mean, Bob, they still drive up to the mailbox. People take videos. People take pictures. So then there's another great theory that you might want to com comment on. That is that... They want there to be a slow time release of information. They want rumors. They want talk about this subject uh, for some reason that fits their agenda. Otherwise, put it in the South Pacific and, you know, nobody... Well, there, there may be some other shortcomings of having it out in the middle of the ocean that, you know, that we're not thinking of. But uh, Perhaps. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe they need lots of supplies to get... To, to deal with this thing and maybe and they the figured if, and, maybe they figured if it crashed it's going to be deep down under the Pacific somewhere potentially and we'd lose it that way that's quite possible too uh, the desert is good for one thing isn't it it's uh, you know it's just there and it's fairly arid and you'd definitely be coming down on land if you landed in a strange place <laughs> anywhere in Nevada yeah yeah so you, you, maybe your original point is actually the reason. It could be that they they wouldn't want to risk losing the one model they've got. Yeah, then you, you figure they're still working on trying desperately to back engineer this, or do you think by now they've done it? It's been a long time. It sure I would, has. I would hope they have made some su substantial progress in ten years. But um, you know, if you don't have access to exotic materials. Uh, then you're what are stuck. you going to do? No fuel, and that's you know, it's like like I said before, being you know back in the 1800s, and if you want to make something out of plastic, you know all you can do is look at it and say, hey, this is really neat, but 
you know, how do we make this stuff? And, yeah. Uh, and, hold, uh, hold on. We're at the top of the hour. We'll be right back with Bob Lazar and you. Talk with Art Bell. Call the wildcard line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call Art at 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art Bell by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5. And dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. We love you, baby. And because we do, we're going to let you talk with Bob Lazar in a moment. If you'll stay right where you are, the forum, the questions are directly ahead. Tomorrow night, we'll give uh, Dr. Greer what I now call the Lear test. We'll give him the Lear test. And I just can't let go of that. Ever since John said what he said on this program, I can't let go of it for some reason. Anyway, coming up in, in a moment, Bob Lazar is going to attempt to answer your questions. So, uh, I guess what I would say is... Uh, Prepare yourself, Bob, because uh, you never know what's going to come. <laughs> All right, it's 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 fun, Bob. Don't don't worry. It's actually <laughs> it's fun. What's uh, the John Lear test, by the way? Oh, what's the John Lear test? Uh, it's really cool, uh, to use your phrase. John uh, took me to a briefing. In essence, he said, "Art, uh, imagine you're going to this briefing." And I'm going to lay the briefing out for you, showing you slides and, um, you know, putting things on the blackboard. And I'm going to explain to you everything the United States uh, and world governments have ever done regard the whole ET issue. And you tell me at the end of it if you would say, okay, make it all public. Okay, yeah, this is what you had touched on before. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, at the end of it, I said, no, I wouldn't. Make oh really? Like, oh, absolutely. And uh, well, I, I am now. That really intrigues me. Why would you say that? <laughs> because 
Because some of the things that John said are so far beyond the pale that the religious implications, the social implications, uh, the fact that I do believe people would go to go berserk, I mean completely berserk, it would take down our government, it would disturb the world, it would disturb the force, it would be... You really think people would, would really wouldn't be able to handle this? Well, you've got to remember now that the test was given from the John Lear perspective. And remember that John believes a lot of things to be true that you don't, right? Yes, I am quite aware. And so <laughs> to take the John Lear test, you've got to take what he says as gospel. In other words, here's what some of the terrible things we've done, really terrible things. Would you make it public and if you had to assume that everything he said there is correct i guarantee you, i'll i'll bet you you'd come up with the same answer so well yeah i come up with the same answer without that but uh, i mean i truly hope <laughs> everything john lear believes isn't true but uh me too <laughs> oh me too <laughs> but believe but me. i have been proven wrong before about many other things so who knows all right you ready yeah, sure. Okay, here we go. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with John Lear. Hello. No, Bob Lazar. Uh, <laughs> I've got John on the mind here. Bob Lazar, how you doing? Hi, Art. Hi, Bob. Hey there. Howdy. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to both of you. It's been a while since I talked to you, Art. Well, glad to have you back. Um, Bob, I just missed meeting you by day one time, and I regret that. Um, I was Where was that? You that was down in uh, Nevada. Oh, okay. Um, I was wondering if you knew about a material called Starlight. Um, it was supposedly created by a couple of scientists, but I've always had suspicions it was, um, you know, alien technology. Starlight? What, what is this material, sir? Well, a physicist told me about this material. It's like um, two liquid plastics, and when you put it together, it forms an indestructible solid. Uh, a nuclear blast won't touch it. Nothing will um, destroy it. Have you heard of such material, Bob? No, I'm. I, I'm pretty skeptical about a claim like that. That uh... well, it's not supposed to be classified, and it came came from a pretty reliable source. And also, John wanted me to ask you about the orange crate in the crater Copernicus. John wanted you to ask him about the orange crate. Right, the crate on the moon. John who? Lear? Uh, John, John Lear, yes, that's correct. Oh, okay, I know what you're talking about. He uh, showed well, me a picture one time, and there was a perfectly square object on a on a moon picture and said, well, what's this orange crate doing there? And we oh. were arguing about, uh, you know, some of the images from the moon and this, these grainy little things with a couple dots, and John was claiming, well, that's just the reflection from a giant... Uh, you know, glass dome over so and so, and uh, but anyway, he did have some pictures that you know I couldn't explain. But uh, well, you know, Bob, uh, and some of what John says is pretty wild. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But on on the one hand, Bob, you're somebody who's actually seen alien craft. Most of us haven't. So to have seen what you've seen uh, are the things then John says really so crazy. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, see, a lot of people would say, flying saucers, we got them, you've seen them, oh, come on, that's crazy. Right, that's, I know, that's crazy, and maybe it makes me a hypocrite for saying so, but uh, that's, look, I am the first one to admit that if somebody 
came forward to me with my identical story and laid everything in my lap, uh-huh. I'm not sure I'd buy it. So I, I can't expect anything else from anybody else. And in fact, I almost prefer people don't believe it because then I get hassled less about it. Martin, uh, Martin in San Rafael says, and I think this is accurate and why I love interviewing you. It says, Lazar continues to be the most credible witness of all. Straightforward, direct, not self-serving. No books, tapes, no website, nothing to sell. He just describes what he saw reluctantly at that. He makes a believer of this skeptic. So in that way, you really do sell your story. I mean, you're so damn low profile about all of this, like you don't want to talk Well, it's about not anything. a business. It's a, I'm just relaying, you know, what happened to me at the time, and, and that's it. You know, it's, it's, that's the end of the story. And, uh, you know, where it's gone and why... The, you know, how all this stuff came about is beyond my scope of knowledge, and I don't profess to know anything that I, you know, haven't been exposed to, but, uh, you know, I will stand on, on what, what I have know. seen. And, I've and got know. that, but, I mean, as incredulous as it sounds, um, why not believe other incredulous things? I mean, if there are saucers here, if there were bodies recovered, if we actually have aliens, then certainly some of the stories about aliens could easily be true well and and maybe so but but you don't know hard, i'm be. spoiled yep i had some things verified to me and had hands-on experience i got to touch him i got to see him i got to analyze them and said okay this is real now for the layman or researcher or whatever that hasn't everything is in the same category to them it's all conjecture you know, yet I've had some things proven to me, and I hold on to those like an anchor. Okay, I know this is real, but I don't know about anything else. I All don't right. know if Betty and Barney Hill were abducted, but they have a compelling story. I don't know if the Roswell crash occurred, but that's a compelling story. Some of the stories you hear are totally illogical and don't make sense. And to me, they fit in the category, you know, you try and maintain an open mind and remain scientific about yes. it. But, they're, you know, you have prejudices in either direction, you know, as most intelligent people do. And, uh, you know, there is, you know, I don't believe everybody that says they were abducted were, was abducted. Um, but they might have been. How would I know? It's just my own personal belief. No, of course not. I, I don't, I don't believe it all either, Bob. Or even, I might even go as far as say large chunks of it that I don't believe. But, but, um, some of this I do believe is true, and based on what you saw and you know to be true, then it's not too hard to imagine that there was interaction. We might not know the exact parameters of that interaction, but there was interaction with aliens. Chan- chances are there was, yeah. in some way, shape, or form, over you know over a period of time. By the way, uh-huh. on another note, I you know I get so many emails about this. Um, Apparently in some other show, and I just got three more recently, some other show, you spoke to somebody, a female, that said, (laughs) they claimed that I took her out to Area 51 and showed her around. That's right. Does this ring a bell to you? Oh, absolutely. I I remember that. This is the most ridiculous story I've ever heard. So that didn't (laughs) happen either, huh? As if they... uh, Allow visitors to top secret security install. That's absurd. Who would even claim something like that? Uh, yeah. So, in either case, that's you know, it's just one of the another one of those knuckleheads that uh, just likes to hear themselves talk for some reason. Uh, okay. 
Um, as a matter of fact, I had an email from this person just uh, yesterday, Bob. Really? Yes, she imagines quite a re relationship uh, with you. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Ah. Not, not true, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> First time caller line, you're on the air with Bob Lazar. Yo-ho. Okay, um, I'm calling because <clears throat> I'm a physics student. In, uh, All right, speak up good and loud. Oh, okay. That's better. I'm, uh, I'm calling about the gravitational um, amplifier system. I'm interested in this because I'm a physics student, and I was thinking that um, kind of at the forefront of physics research now is kind of a push to detect uh, gravitational waves, and which is a tough thing to do, and probably ultimately discover the <clears throat> gravitational particle, the graviton. And I was thinking about this three-pole um, uh, system that you described as very directional, and uh, maybe maybe a gravitational current is involved. I was wondering if that maybe hints at why we can't figure out what is going on there. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, this is more of the research I wanted to conduct while there. While I wanted to get down to the hardcore research in gravity and gravity and how the energy propagates by itself. And by the way, I don't, I don't believe there are gravitons. I don't believe there's particles involved. I don't believe it, it's even a wave-particle duality, mm. you know, like light photons are. I, you know, I think this is, well, it's, it, it appears to be more of a wave effect. And mm. Exactly how it propagates is, at least I don't personally understand that. It almost seemed to propagate as microwaves did, since hmm. any time inside the craft, the gravity, uh, the base of gravity wave was rooted anywhere from the reactor to the amplifiers, it always traveled inside tuned pipes. So, hmm. uh, Again, that implies at a specific frequency you should have some sort of gravitational effect if it's just a basic you know carrier wave of some sort, but you know that that doesn't appear to be true so it's something it's something more than that well, we know don't we that uh, microwave can be carried in like oblong tubes right waveguide right exactly waveguides so that, that's what connected the reactor to yes. the uh the skin of the craft, and ultimately to the... So then whatever the, whatever the nature of this wave is, you could imagine it like microwave because it, it was carried, according to your physical description, kind of the same way. Right, but if it's just a basic wave, you know, you could just set up a high-frequency oscillator, and then as you slowly increase the frequency, you get different effects. You know, you get microwave, you get... And it's all part of the electromagnetic specs spectrum and you get x-rays and whatever and you should just run into uh, gravity at some point but but you don't so there's there's something else there but they were they were so concerned about the actual application of it they weren't really concerned about you know the research into the the basics of it which you know probably if it would would have been done that way when i was there i at least i think it would have given us a clue at least a better clue of how to use it and how to duplicate it. But again, you think, Bob, don't you, that uh, they're now still, if they haven't done it, they're certainly pursuing it. You wouldn't give up on something like that, would you? Are you kidding? Not a chance. Not a chance. You know, I'm so, sure just tremendous amounts of money are being funneled into this. And so then that's, I'm sure they continue to handpick specific people yep. that they can think, anyway, are going to keep their mouths closed and, <laughs> and uh, you know, be, be involved with it. But... Uh, I, there was a frustration even when I got there. By the way, That's, I wonder what happened to the person that picked you. 
It's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> hey, caller, caller, anything else? Uh, yeah, actually, <clears throat> I was wondering if if Bob has it. I'm sorry, Mr. Lazar, I shouldn't. Uh, That's Bob is fine. Mr. Lazar is my dad. <laughs> I was wondering if you had any thoughts as to the propagation speed of the wave. We know light travels at a certain speed, right. um, or at least we assume it's a constant speed. Do you think um, you think that gravity is different? Yeah. Good, good question. Yeah, excellent question. Because for all from all indications, the propagation is instantaneously, and I know that it upsets everything. But remember, gravity in itself distorts time and space, yeah. and every way we attempted to measure the propagation from the reactor base to the emitters themselves, there was no delay at all. And so, hmm. I believe that I, I don't know if the wave is actually propagating instantly or the fact that it's a gravitational wave is distorting the time-space around it and making it appear as it's an instantaneous propagation. But wow. that's, th those are the results that we got. Bob, you said um, you actually measured no delay at all. I, how carefully was that measured? I mean, no delay at all is quite a statement to make. I, you could measure this. Speed. Right. So, right. So. There, was, there, was, there was no delay at all. And we... Uh, again envisioned other potential uses you know here's a sure. look at communication to mars is still a flat 20 minutes between our little robot orbiters and and things of that sort uh you know here you have the potential if in fact there is instantaneous propagation of gravitational waves uh you know here's a, a fantastic communication device where there's no delay where you can talk in real time at great distances so the uh you know, obviously, there's just tremendous implications of this technology. Even time travel. It's it's possible. You know, gravity distorts time, and and if gravity, if the speed of gravity, which is not defined, is faster than light, then you certainly have time travel based on that alone. Well, you know, like they say, time travel is a lot more common than you think. Time travel in the to the future happens all the time. All you have to do is stand there. <laughs> stand on a high mountain, go into a spacecraft, travel fast. You do slip nanoseconds into the future. Time travel backwards is debatable whether or not that's even possible. Well, but, we're uh, off on a tangent. Caller, right. caller any, any yeah. final thing? Uh, I guess there's one other thing. Um, you notice you you, uh, you mentioned an element 115. I'm assuming that's atomic mass number. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think that goes further than the periodic table. Is that true? Mm. Right, that's correct. So, <clears throat> so maybe... Um, Maybe that kind of uh, insinuates that you're dealing with a higher amplitude gravity wave and just, I guess, more to start off with if you're going to amplify it. I mean, Well, yeah, there's something unique about that element, um, just like there's something unique about the nuclear elements we use in, in reactors. But something apparently happens different there that doesn't, and I know there were previous attempts to duplicate what was going on with other materials, other nuclear materials, mm -hmm. and there was no success in that. So there is something very unique about the fuel and specifically what it is. You know, on an atomic scale, we were only just beginning to look into that. So, Bob, I heard some rumors about uh, some kind of speculating about or perhaps lab work going on something surrounding element 115. It's just I, between when you told your story and now, sometime or another, I remember hearing about some legit science 
dabbling with the concept of 115 or something. I can't remember. Do you... Yeah, I, I believe it was the lab for heavy ion research in Darmstadt, Germany. And at the time, they were on the cutting edge of coming up with new elements. And I, they were uh, they were shooting for producing element 115 at one point. And um, they were using a new technique. Instead of bombarding something with neutrons, they were just uh, slamming... Uh, nuclei together and somehow it was fusing into heavier elements but I don't think they they reached it and in fact I don't know if it was the same lab but uh, somebody found out that there was false data I mean the last heavy element that was claimed that might have been 113 or what do we like think uh, what do we think the uh, the properties of this element would be generally well that that's hard to predict I mean we certainly observed some unique properties of it. It's it's incredibly heavy and incredibly dense. Um, aside from that, it uh, the way the reactor worked in the craft was like a small accelerator, and it constantly bombarded the 115, which transmuted and immediately decayed, and that's when it produced its gravitational pulses. And as wow. a byproduct, it produced a tremendous amount of heat. And Doc, inside gotcha. this one... Hold, listen. Okay. All right, we're at the bottom of the hour. Hold on. Uh, this is really good stuff. Bob Lazar is my guest. But, yeah, John Lear is on my mind. <laughs> the test tomorrow night for Dr. Greer. Talk with Art Bell. Call the Wildcard Line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5. And dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Well, for sure, fascinating stuff. Bob Lazar, man who's had hands-on with alien craft, hands-on with alien, uh, alien propulsion uh, element 115. That's his, another story that he can't quite totally talk about, nor will John Lear. In a moment, we continue with Bob. Stay right where you are. From the mountains of New Mexico, directly to you and with you right now, here is Bob Lazar. Bob? 
You, you ready for more? Sure. Yeah, these are pretty good people. And you were in the middle of, uh, I, I don't want to miss out on anything else you'd like to say about the propulsion system and how Element 115 was acting in the process. You know, I was on a roll at the minute, and now I can't quite Well, remember you remember you said it was bomb, it was, it was hitting element 115. Oh, how the reactor operated. I yeah. guess I drifted onto that, and yes. how the 115 itself was bombarded, uh, released the, um, in some way, shape, or form, releases, uh, a pulse of, uh, a gravitational wave, and kind of as a byproduct, uh, releases a tremendous amount of heat, and that heat is converted to electricity, which runs the craft. However, there's no wiring or any conventional uh, connectors or controls or anything of that sort on the mm. craft. But uh, all incredibly fascinating, and, you know, to a scientist, it's, it's a dream come true. So, yeah, yeah, sure, in some respects, I, I regret the way things turned out, but uh, I don't know, maybe eventually we'll all find out what's going on. Yeah, I, I wonder, uh, I really wonder, as the world grows short of oil and the wars are raging because of it and we prepare to go back to the moon, maybe in the shuttle of all things, uh, I don't know, it just seems like if all of this really is there, and yet, and yet I guess the answer is that you suggest we have, as of, well, the date you knew anyway, not been successful in the back engineering attempt, so we don't have it down yet, or if we do, for some reason we're not willing to begin to release it. I mean, you'd think uh, they could do it through industry, you know, sort of sliding things slowly into industry as some development or something just to get it into the economy. Uh, possibly. And maybe that's already been done. But um, every time somebody points at something, you know, there is also conventional explanations for it. We really haven't seen anything, you know, incredibly amazing pop up. We see improvements over products here and there and, uh, you know, a, a couple things. But there really hasn't been any quantum leaps, you know, in recent times. Well, you may recall, if you ever heard uh, Colonel Corso's story before he passed on, that he suggested that's exactly how a number of things made it from the Roswell crash to modern industry. Yeah, pretty interesting stuff. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Bob Lazar. Hello. Hello. Yes, hi. Okay. Uh, hi, Art. Hi, Bob. How are hey you? Hey there. Speak up good and loud, sir. Okay. Um, this is Alan from Colorado, and I have three questions, so I hope you can bear with me. All right. My first question is, is uh, if Aldrich Ames of the CIA can go to jail for so many years, um, because he revealed government secrets, um, how is it that Bob, um, you know, was able to pull this off? And then my second okay, question... Okay, well, let's do them one at a time. Okay. Uh, Bob, uh, pretty good question. Mm -hmm. um, if you'd been revealing secrets of the magnitude that we've been talking about tonight, uh, well, of course, uh, I, I can answer Well, what question. would you jail me for? You know, oh, you I know when somebody gives away, you know, secrets... Uh, satellite secrets or other technology secrets, and, you know, that information has to be brought out. So, okay, you're going to take me to court and say, okay, you released the information. What did he release? Oh, well, secret stuff. Well, what? You know, they, you're not going to trick them into admitting what they're trying to keep secret. Yeah, and something of this magnitude, exactly so. Uh, so I guess I would answer that, caller. I mean, after all, if they charged him with something, they would simply underscore everything he said. Next question. Okay, the next question is, 
are there not simpler ways to create gravitational propulsion effects, um, you know, like with scalar waves, possibly? I mean, I mean, we're talking uh, element 115. This whole procedure seems so exotic and so advanced. Can we not work we with cannot. what we have now? There have been gra there have not been gravitational waves produced in any other method, and there are claims as such all over the place. And people say you can do it with these Mercury engines. I've heard scalar waves. I've seen you know all of that data. The bottom line is it's not real. Next. Okay, last question. Um, T. Townsend Brown, uh, John Searle, uh, Victor Schauberger with his Vortex technology, John Keel, Otis T. Carr, all these researchers, uh, which this relates to the second question, and I think I know how you're going to answer it. Um, how do you feel about what they've so-called contributed to gravitational propulsion technology? Contributed where? Where is it? Show me one. Bring it oh. down here. I'll even fly and see it. Every time I've wasted my time on that, looking at everybody that's claimed any of that stuff, it's never panned out. It's like perpetual motion. The same. Yeah, there's there's plenty of claims, and you know sure. people want you know are looking for funding to research this or do that, and you know for the most part, not for the most part, there is no device of any sort that can create a gravitational wave now, and go ahead and prove me wrong. Other than what was at S4. Damn, you are such a reasonable person. No, but that's that's a fact. Please but prove I, me wrong. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll oh, hey, listen, come I'm, and check out what I'm you're going to claim. With you all the way, but you, you see, that that's what makes your other claims so damn legit in my mind, just like that person who fast blasted me. Jeez. Louise, in every other way, you're so... Now, that I'm, I'm not belittling these people that are doing this work. You know, D. Dobbs and Brown... Many others were brilliant people doing work, and yes. I, I think a lot of the things they observed have other explanations. Yes. And, uh, you know, just because something lifts off the ground does not make it gravity propulsion. But gravity propulsion, I define as something that's acting directly against gravity, and I don't mean being lifted by electrostatic forces, something like that, something that's actually you know, counteracting. Your, your skepticism everywhere else just uh, is so strange in light of what you say uh, to the rest of us. He's, Look, he's, I barely believe my own story. It <laughs> happens to me. He's that's the, how big of a skeptic I am. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Bob Lazar. Hello, Bob. Hi there. It's nice speaking to both of you. And to you, sir. Where are you? Out of I'm curiosity. from Pasadena. My Pasadena. Name's Okay. Yes, for over 20 years I've been within the research of exobiology. I don't want to mention any names, but my ex-father-in-law, who was with the CIA at Groom Lake before he died of Agent Orange, he asked me if there's anything I would like to know about Area 51. And mm. I said, yes. Is the government cover-ups of UFOs and ETs true? He said, yes, because he stood guard several feet away within one of the hangar bays guarding ETs from the UFO that was being brought from one place to another. But hmm. this person, is your dad, has passed on. Yes, he passed away. See, he was all fed up with the government for what they were doing to him because he spent so much time in the service and all that, you know, with them that they wouldn't do any more for him. And so he just said, to heck with it. Hmm. Yeah, they have a pretty bad record of taking care of their own people. Right. But, uh, yeah, you find a lot of people as they come... You know, close to the end of their lives. Look what happened with the JFK thing. You know, just if enough time goes by, people become 
more comfortable releasing what they know. Yeah, well, that's why I said there there've got to be other Bob Lazards out there, and there surely are. So um, you, you take the very moral position that you would rather see them not come back for their own sakes than come back and and verify your story. Oh, ab- absolutely. <laughs> if you're listening, don't listen to Art. Don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Bob Lazar. Hello. Hello, uh, this is Bob in Beaverton listening to KEX. Yes, sir. Uh, I want to know, uh, Bob, have you ever heard of the work of Jerry Gallimore, who under certain conditions could see gravity? No, never heard that before. Okay, uh, the way he did it uh, was um, doing the old uh, high school uh, science class project, just lay a a bar magnet on a table and put the paper on it and sprinkle the iron filings on it so you can see the magnetic lines of force. Okay. But but Jerry was a Native American and something of a shaman, and uh, around the center point of that magnet, he could see a halo of energy uh, that was gravity. Okay, and here is where the... Why does he think it was gravity? The metaphysical meets uh, science. Well, regardless, he, he thought that. So... Uh, do you ever wonder about that at all, Bob? I mean, the entire metaphysical world, uh, maybe it's all hooey, and maybe it's another one where you can say, prove it to me first, but, boy, I'll tell you, there's some good stories out there. I hear them all the time about things that we simply really don't understand regarding the afterlife. And I'm, I'm sure that that is true. You know, to to be to be so bold to say that, boy, we have science handled and we pretty much know what's going on and everything's cut and dry and you know that is so far from the truth we you know we aren't even even at the tip of the iceberg as far as knowledge about everything around us and you know talk about the metaphysical stuff we really have no idea what's going on and a lot of these things that you know people think are silly you know, and things that I I may laugh at may actually turn out to be true. Oh, so there's going to be a place to keep an open mind. There's going to be a place, Bob, where the metaphysical or something in the metaphysical square on meets science, and science suddenly will say, "Oh my God, there is another side," or "Oh my God, uh, we really now suddenly have proof to some degree of a soul, some way to prove something in the metaphysical. Who knows what it might turn out to be, but somewhere science and metaphysical will suddenly meet, I predict it. Um, First time caller line, you're on the air with Bob Lazar. Hello. Hi, this is Ken in Salt Lake, and I'm just loving your program. You guys are both wonderful. Thank Thank you. I have an observation and a question. Uh, The observation is in Encarta, in Microsoft Encarta, in the encyclopedia, there's a reference about element 115, if you go into 1976, look under physics, 1976, it talks about element 115 as being present in a meteorite that came into the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, okay. And also the heavier elements. Wait, wait a minute, sir. Wait, 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 oh, wait. Oh, oh, oh. Where was this again? I'm... In Encarta, uh, which is the, uh, I guess that's the, uh, what is it, the encyclopedia that you get for your computer from Microsoft. Really? And at Microsoft and Carter, and you go to 1976, we're under and physics. they're talking about a, a meteor that had element 115 115, and they, me- they were able to measure it and deduce that it had element 115 in it. And also, uh, the other reference is for 116 through about 124, at the end of the article, it says they were uh, measured in mica schist that was in Africa, 
Wow. So in micro schist, uh, mica schist, which is I guess a rock formation, there is uh, there's trace when they bombard it with a, a Van de Graaff generator at high energy, gives off a, a pattern of uh, uh, of atomic uh, some signature that shows that those elements were there. The logic is there. They talk about it. Well, wow, right. that's really interesting. Yes. I now. This is an, isn't Encarta. It, we're not talking about something that's on the internet. Yeah, we were talking about Encarta that you'd buy for your computer, which is a encyclopedia from right, Microsoft. Right on a. It comes from Microsoft, right? Yeah, okay, it's well, a Microsoft software program. You just and, put it and in what your did computer. you look up to find this? Under physics, 1976. All right, great. Uh, and uh, at the bottom of the article, it's in there. Uh, the reference. Okay. The other question I have, the only question I have. All right, is, stop for a second. Uh, okay. Out there, if somebody would be so kind as do the research, email it to me. I'll have it by tomorrow night. Continue, sir. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. One other question. That is, I heard the rumor that somebody had tried to open one of the reactors somewhere on the facility there. Somebody made that suggestion and that there was an atomic explosion underground. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I heard that, and I oh. heard that officially, too. Oh, oh, oh really? Yeah, I, yeah, that was one of the things that was told to me. In fact, that was one of the reasons why I worked there, because I was allegedly replacing one of these people. So the previous Bob Lazar got a little too close to what was going on, apparently, and from from what I recall from the story, I believe it was in March, and I don't remember the date, yes. but it was it was uh, announced as a nuclear test, and there is a corresponding date for that test, and uh, what they have listed as the test is completely false information. That was the detonation of the reactor at the test site. Um, the detonation. So it exploded with the force of you say they announced it as a un- it was a low yield test a low yield. you know as they remember they used to do that in las vegas all oh, the time. Uh, sure i used to yeah. announce it you know get off high buildings that kind of stuff right they, they'd always tell you in advance but uh anyway the, the that data is on their site not about what it was but that date and i don't remember it in march i'm sure george knapper one of those guys that do you know anything about the nature of the um uh, the explosion the uh, yeah the, i know it was the intention was, well, the frustration was with the reactor at that point, and for whatever reason, somebody had the bright idea, well, let's try and open it, open it yeah. while it's operating. Oh, really? So, yeah. Oh, oh, my. Extra smart guys working on this problem. So they took this, uh, they they took the one of the prototype, not the prototype reactors, one of the reactors from one of the other craft, and by the way, they all looked exactly the same, not the craft, but the reactors, and they uh, took it to the nuclear test site, and it was done remotely underground. And the people monitoring it I, apparently were too close, and they didn't—they didn't realize the explosion was, you know, going to be that large. And it did. And again, this isn't something I witnessed. This is something I was told. But it was something I was told while I was out at the site. So. It just has another notch of authenticity because I heard it out. There. How many uh, people allegedly lo- lost their lives in this? Do you know? I don't. I don't recall. It wasn't. It, it wasn't like there were a lot of people. There were, you know, uh, two or three people from what seems to stick in my mind. But I, I can't say that for sure. I don't recall. Whew. I, 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 I did hear that exact story. I'll be doggone. I had ne- never heard any of that. All right, uh, Wildcard Line. You're on the air with Bob Lazar. Hello. Yes. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm just outside of Boston. Okay. And uh, I've got a question going back to Bob's comments about running his car on hydrogen. Okay, fire away. Uh, okay. Um, 
over the last bunch of years, Nexus Magazine has run at least a couple of articles about running one's car on hydrogen Mm -hmm. uh, using electrolysis, in other words, generating the hydrogen uh, on board, on demand. Um, And I just, some people I've spoken to about it say it's a ridiculous idea that it's impossible that it would take I'm one of those people. Really? More energy? It's not happening. You you can't crack water that fast. Uh, oh really? Yeah, the you, you can't. Because you, there's a guy unless, unless you're carrying a nuclear power plant behind you. <laughs> you 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 just can't. Water doesn't come apart that fast. And and uh, there are flash ways in fact uh, I met a physicist from Sandia Labs here and was talking to him and they have uh this neat device that kind of works on a, a plasma pulse and, and cracks water at much higher volume than electrolysis. And in fact, a guy emailed me, re- emailed me recently that has something that does that with uh, hydrocarbons. But uh, as far as, you know, driving a car and having and producing hydrogen by electrolysis from water at a volume great enough to keep the car running is oh. never going to happen. It's not <laughs> so going to happen. So you, you, you are... Uh, required really to to generate the hydrogen at some other time, some other place, and then pipe right. it into the car and store it. You can't. Our, our product is a small hydrogen generator, kind of like a uh, dishwasher. Uh, sits in your garage, solar panels, and it takes two to three days to fill the tanks because it it you it takes a lot of energy and it takes a long time to do it. Now there are faster ways, but you know they consume more power, and well, some don't. But are more complicated, don't use water, so on and so forth. Ours is a low cost, just uses connect to the water line, uses solar panels, and slowly cranks out hydrogen. And you can, over a period of two to three days, fill the tanks in your car, and then you know you can drive 700 miles. Ideally, you'd have several sets of tanks and just fill them and and whatnot. But uh, that's it's the only way to do it. I've been playing with hydrogen fuel systems since you know the the late 70s, and uh, that you just can't make it fast enough. Huh. Caller, okay. a few seconds. Uh, uh, well, I'm all set. You're happy? All right, then I bye. Guess. Thank, yep, thank, thank you. Thank you, and uh, take care. And I'm afraid that uh, time is slipping by. Uh, no, it has slipped by, and the end of the program is here. So, hey, Bob, man, what a great program. Again, every time you come on, it's a great program. Hey, always great to talk to you, Art. And uh, maybe next time you're here, I'll give you the uh, the Lear test. <laughs> anyway, anyway, listen. Thanks for being here, huh? Hey, thank you. Thanks again, Art. Take care and good night. Thanks. Uh, he always he's a totally excellent interview. Anytime you talk to him, Bob Lazar from the High Desert, in the middle of the night. I'm Art Bell. See you tomorrow night. Bye.